welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Adventures, this is it. The last episode ever of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. For season two, that is. Yes, this is it. Season two concludes today, so you can get the whole thing on Blu-ray in like two months' time. This is Patrick, as always. And as you know, the king's been tending to royal duties like uh, work. <laughs> He's actually been uh, traveling a lot lately, so we just couldn't get together to get a recording down. Rest assured, we're going to be packed together, though, and episodes will be back to the dynamic duo that you sometimes listen to. For today, however, I'm very pleased to be joined by our Lost Loot segment host and a co-host of the Tabletop Submarine podcast, our very own explorer, Josh. Josh, welcome. Patrick, you know what they say about people who show up in the season finale of stuff? Like, they tend to be the best part of whatever <laughs> show they're on. So hey, I, I really okay. think you're saying something to me right now by inviting me on the finale. Well, I'm glad to have you. You know, we had Ryan last <laughs> week filling in for Scott, who, again, has been doing so much traveling. You know, the truth be told, Scott and I did a recording a few days ago. I got Scott's audio and it just wasn't right. Something happened with his microphone. Mm. His software is picking up the wrong mic. So I thought, oh, geez. Scott travels and he doesn't have his computer with him, so I need to come up with someone real quick. So immediately thought, ah, I know, I'll have Teacher Ryan on, but he wasn't available to join me for this episode. So, well, that's okay. Will Brown, the hungry gamer, and he couldn't either. So, hey, Josh, it is. <laughs> so really, so really, I'm fourth understudy. <laughs> I'm like the eleventh hour. Like, I, I guess we'll get this guy who you know sometimes shows up on the podcast and talks no, about games I'm- no one's heard of. <laughs> I am so delighted to have you. What's kind of neat with Level Up, and this was this was a happy accident. You know, uh, Scott tends to be the uh, I'm the, the the flavor of the game, the theme of the game, and I really like to get under the hood and like mechanically figure out what's going on within a game, the strategy. And then you bring this burgeoning designer willing to try out the prototypes, like kind of the I don't want to say like the underground, but like you know, we all have that friend that's into music that no one's ever heard of. <laughs> You're yeah, that guy yeah. with the board games, you know. You know the <laughs> you know the things that other people don't know about, and then Ryan knows the new hotness and the and the heavy euros. Andrew dives into the history with this wonderful accident that happened where everybody brings their own specialty. And I'm chatting with Scott, this being, you know, spoiler for what to expect in season three. We're going to go over a whole lot of season three upcoming stuff next episode. But I am talking with Scott. We did decide we want to have a lot more a lot more regularity with having our co-hosts rather than just segments. We'd like to do like every other episode have either you or Andrew or Will or like get more three voice episodes in. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I really enjoyed Ryan's episode and he he just he brought a really like a really enthusiasm that really changed things up in the formula. So, I think it's great. Yeah, I'm excited to hear what you guys have cooking up back there. Yeah, well, it's exciting. In the meanwhile, we are still in season two, so we're in the home stretch of the year. Thanksgiving dinner has officially been consumed, trekked its way through our collective digestive systems, and is now lingering yeah. in the sewers. <laughs> it's in you, my sewer for sure, yeah. <laughs> you, brave adventurer, you've got the tingles for some gaming. So as this episode releases, if you're anything like me, Scott, Teacher Ryan, Josh, etc., you're either at PAX, on your way to PAX, or envious of those of us who are. 
In any case, we have a heck of a lineup today. We're going to be talking Spirits of the Forest, Calico, Space Station Phoenix, Paper Dungeons, and more before our 8-bit breakdown of Stuff of Legend. And then Woo! stick around. Our discussion today is going to be all about tips for when you are working at a convention. I feel like that's a good space to uh, segue into the banter. Josh, what do you have going on? Tell what's been going on in the Josh world? Lots of designing. Um, that's the big thing. Uh, PAX is going to be very busy for me. I have, I think, five pitch meetings set up for four different wow. games of mine. So I'm meeting with some names you might know. Ivy Studios, who did Moonrakers. I just set up a yeah. appointment up with them. So they just I'm sent us uh, Mythic Mischief. I, I literally broke it out. It is sitting on the table across from me. I was like, well, we've got to, uh, got to learn this one. Get it on the table. Yeah, they're really good at like presenting games that tell a good story as you play. And so I have I have a game of mine that I think fits well in the line, and they thought so too. So we're going to meet down and see if it is a good fit. Uh, but then I'm doing stuff with BoardGameTables.com as well, which you and me, we're going to be talking about later, but we're both volunteering at this weekend. Mm-hmm. And we're also meeting with Origami Whale and Third World Studios, who did stuff of Legend as well. All, all these people that's who right. I met and kind of you know connecting things like that. So that's what I'm doing this weekend. Besides that, I am actually stepping up my editing game as well. As you, some of you may know, oh, with the I, podcast. Yeah, you, okay. So, Josh, you've been doing tabletop submarine. That has happened since the last. You were on the episode with us for Glow way back when we reviewed Glow. That's the last time we had you, and you weren't doing tabletop submarine yet. Tell us how that's going. Yeah, no. Well, tabletop submarine. For those who don't know, it's a podcast about stories, stories of board gaming. That's all I'll say about it. It's great. Um, I have my co-host Andrew, who's awesome, and it's going pretty well. You know, we're we're kind of trying to follow in the footsteps of great podcasts. You know. Um, doing our best to release consistent episodes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, my editing skills are starting to get better. And I actually got an editing job for another podcast. Is that I'm right? Not, yeah, I'm not going to say anything who they are first. I'm not going to announce it. But I will say they are a Dice Tower Network podcast. And I'm oh, super cool. excited to be working with these people. So, yeah, I mean, lots of exciting things happening. I'm still trying to, you know, earn the hustle of the board game life and trying to, you know, make my way in the industry. But, you know, all the while listening to podcasts, enjoying hearing you and Scott's voice every other Thursday, listening to you guys talk about games. That, that, that's really just me. I'm just, you know, doing the grind. Do you listen to your own podcast? Like when, when the episode launches, do you download and give it a listen like that day? Yeah, I usually do. I, I actually, I know that's weird for some people, but I give it about a 20 to 30 minute listen. So uh-huh. I can, especially if there's parts where I'm concerned about maybe it didn't turn out well, but I give it a listen and I try to learn from it. It's so weird. I hate my voice so much. Like you and Scott <laughs> have such smooth milk chocolate voices that kind of melt over people's ears. I'll, I'll give Scott that one. He he's got he's got a deep boom to his voice. Yeah, and you do too. You have you have a good you have a great voice as well. Like that's that's part of the reason you guys are successful. You have a good easy to listen to voice, and mine's like you know on the ears. I'll, sometimes I'll I take swear. that as a compliment. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you have a delightful voice, Josh. Oh, thank you. But yeah, no, it's I, I do listen to my podcast. You listen to Level Up when you publish Every it? time. Every time. And you know what happens is I turn it on and like I even now, uh, what is this, 77 episodes in, I promise you I will listen to it that morning and I'll get this real nervousness. Like, what if I – like, I know. I know that everything's edited and everything segues beautifully. The music's appropriate. Nothing's – and yet I still get worried that like, oh, what if I didn't put in that – what if I missed the transition music and we just have this dead air? And it's only happened one time and it was way back on like episode nine. We're like, all right, now let's do the walkthrough for Century Spice road and the music fades in the music fades out and then nothing happened and i was like Ooh. and i turned the car around went home and like re-edited 
took the episode down, reposted the episode, but it fortunately was way back on nine. So it's like, well, baptism by fire, you know, maybe that had happened means it'll never happen again. Knock on wood. Josh, you said we're going to be at PAX this weekend. That's when this episode is releasing is Thursday, December 1st. So if you're on your way, you'd mentioned it, Josh, you're going to be at board game tables from 10 to 2 on Friday and Saturday. I'll be there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Again, adventures, you want to come learn a game from us, that's where we're going to be. But Scott's going to be posted up over with Berkey at Game Toppers. If you're in the market for a topper, you want to spruce up your game table, make games that much more exciting, that much more attractive, go talk with Scott over that way. And I think that's where level up's going to be kind of shacking up a bit. Berkey's like, yeah, if you guys need like somewhere to play your games throughout the weekend, you can come over here. I have plenty of space. So, you know, you want to get in a game, you want to come over and chat with us for a little bit. That might be the place to do it. That's cool. I mean, that's Berkey's a cool guy. I've met him once at Tantrum Con. He's just, you know, he just seems like a really chill guy. So I'm really glad you guys, you know, have that opportunity to do it. I need to see if me and Scott have a plan to face off with flesh and blood. Which is a you know it's a trading card game similar to Magic, but better in my opinion. I mean, Scott, our talk recently turns out he has some Blitz decks, which are like short form format stuff. Oh, so I we're know. Gonna, we're I listened on- to the submarine. <laughs> so, yeah, you listened. Me and him are going to face off. I submerged we're, with you guys. Yeah, went on a deep sea adventure with <laughs> us. Yeah, but yeah, me and Scott are totally going to have a great time. We we have it all planned. We're building decks together. We're going to face off each other with some flesh and blood. So hopefully, we can do it on those really nice game topper tables. Josh, you lived in Philly. Everybody knows. What do they call it? The market? Reading Terminal Terminal? Market. Reading Terminal Market. All right. So everybody's got their mind on Reading Terminal Market. One thing that I noticed last year is if you are within a block of the convention, you ain't getting a table anywhere. Give us an inside scoop. Give me two restaurants that are like, oh, it's worth the wait. Or you don't want to wait. Just go an extra block and go here. You're on the spot. Go. Okay. Well, if you're looking for a good steak or a good cheesesteak, there's two places I recommend. Um, one is called Tony's. It's in North Philly. It's about 15 minutes away. It's worth the drive. Great cheesesteaks. When I was living there, that's where I usually went. Mm. Um, but the best cheesesteak I ever had in Philly was a place called Gooey Louie's in Southern mm-hmm. Philadelphia. It's hidden in this like, little strip mall. And you can't see from the street. You just got to know where it is. But oh, they just they know how to do a good cheesesteak. It is so, <laughs> so good. I mean, they, they, they just get the bread right. The meat is flavorful. I mean, and the only way – they have like the best cheese was – for what I'm saying, the only way to eat a cheesesteak is with spray cheese. That yeah, is it's the- not actual cheese. And people in Philly are like, oh, that's, that's the way you do a cheesesteak. And I'm like, that is gross. It is I'm amazing. <laughs> it's, <laughs> they my, don't my put peppers and onions on it. Uh, they usually don't. It's a preference, but a true – from what I understand, the true Philadelphian just like cheesesteak or just a classic cheesesteak is just meat, cheese, and bread. Peppers and onions are great. I always have my peppers and onions. But, you know, that meat, that spray cheese, and that beautiful bread is quite fantastic. You know, it's spray cheese. It may not be real cheese, but it is dang good on a cheesesteak. Mm, that delicious cheese product. <laughs> oh, clog your arteries. It packs oh, yeah. this weekend. You, you feel your heart slowly stopping as it enters your body and is wonderful. <laughs> Before we get rolling on our recent plays, we always like to talk about some of the, the hotness, the cool stuff, things that we've been getting into. And I've got a couple on here I want to bring up. Elden Ring has launched. And this oh, thing my gosh. is in the process of going bonkers. Not like Frosthaven bonkers, nothing like that. But it is up over 2.5 million bucks earned. Dude, the all in on this thing is over $400. You figure the shipping's probably oh, going to be 100 So much. How are we going to get this on the show? Boy, I tell you what, I had a friend growing up. Anytime. I don't know about your situation growing up, but we didn't have a lot of money, right? We had a Super Nintendo and we would get two games a year, 
maybe. But my buddy, he would get a game a month, right? They would. He and his brother would constantly be getting games. So if I needed a game, what did I do? I borrowed it from Mike. He was like the hookup. He was the he was the pusher man. He's like, yeah, you want Tiny Toon Adventures? I got Tiny Toon Adventures. Mike backed Elden Ring. As it turns out, he's still a huge fan of video games. And he was telling me, dude, as soon as this thing launches, tell me. So I'm sitting at work and my phone buzzes and it's Mike. He says, I'm about to do a dumb thing. And I said, oh, no, you're not good. Are you going to go all in? He's like, I just did. So he said, oh, reserve no. time. When this thing comes in, we're spending some time. I backed one called Pest. And I wish I could tell you a lot, but adventures, you know by now that whenever I back a Kickstarter, I usually don't read what it is. I look at the pictures. I decide if it looks cool. I read a quick overview and boom, I'm in. So Pest, it, it looks like an area control game where plagues are, are happening to the populace and in some way hindering you as you're taking over, building your building out your tableau and trying to trying to win the game. Give it a look, though. It's, it's still live as the episode comes live. One that's coming up on November 29th will be live when this episode airs. It's called Shake That City. Now, have you seen Shake That City from AEG? No, I've heard of it because I've done you know some playtesting for AEG, mm-hmm. but I never really looked. I never looked into it. This one's really cool. Check this. This game they had this one at Gen Con. Uh, we went to the the hotel room for the content creators, and they had a few games set up, and one of them was Shake That City. And I actually, I've since messaged them, seeing if we could get a copy ahead of time, because I would have loved to have done a side quest, but alas, we didn't get a copy ahead of time. The hook of the game, right? You have a little cube distributor. Think of like a little cardboard box. And you know how in uh, Camel Up, you've got the pyramid with the rubber band, and you push on one side, and it lets one die fall out the bottom? Amazing, yes. This does that. But instead of one die, it is nine cubes and they come out in a perfect little grid, three rows of three. But they go in the middle of the table and the four players sitting around or two or however, you get to take them based on your facing of that grid of three by three. In the middle, just an excellent little city builder takes about 45 minutes to play. The mechanism that distributes the cubes actually works. You know, my I was I was sitting there in this hotel room checking out the demo. I'm like, okay, this thing can't possibly work that well. So I'm like trying to mess with it and see, oh, what if I bump it? What if I do? Nope. Works every time. You just pour in a whole bunch of different color cubes, when, give it a little shake. And then whenever you hit that button, push in the cardboard and let it go, outcome nine. It's Wonderful, excellent little game. I'm looking forward to hopefully getting in a demo, playing it a little bit more at PAX. That sounds great. Like that engineering that went into that just to get the idea. I mean, that's that's why I really love AEG. They are really good at creating good games that do interesting things like this. Whether the game, yeah. is like, whether the game ends up being good or bad, I just give them props for the idea of creating that shaker and randomizing it that way. That's just so good. You know what? I'll always think of them as a company that's going to put out like really decent games. I, I don't think that there's an AEG game that would be like, that is the best game ever. But they consistently put out good stuff at a good price. And they play in that like mid-weight territory, light light mid territory where you can play this and none of their games are super long. You can introduce them to people and uh, Shake That City certainly fits that bill. I also wanted to point out Hungry Gamer is doing Beatrice's Game of the Year. You don't know who Beatrice is, do you? It's his dog. He's got a, what is it, a King James or King Richard Spaniel? It's a Spaniel of some sort. It's an adorable little dog. Yeah, I think, okay, yeah, the King, uh, now it's going to bug me, but that's okay. Either way, it's, it's the dog that's choosing a game. 
Yes, the King Scott Cocker Spaniel will be choosing a game. He's going to put a little blueberry in front of each game. So he's got like 16 <laughs> games. Like he's doing brackets, March Madness style. And people oh can my. fill out their own brackets. And he's given away like six or eight games, Adventures. If you don't watch Hungry Gamer, check him out on YouTube. The dude's always got cool things. He's always got previews, stuff that's not even out yet. Will's got great insight. And he's doing a giveaway right now. And quite frankly, that dog's adorable. I have yet to meet Will. I, I watch Will's content. Yeah. I, I haven't met him yet. I'm hoping to change that. I'm hoping I can actually maybe like meet him at PAX somehow. It won't be at PAX. He's been traveling oh, all not. year. Yeah. Uh, so Okay. So Lunar Rush was a game that his brother created and, and put out. And he had the hookup with the guys at Dead Alive. And Dead Alive saw Lunar Rush. They were like, yes, absolutely. Thanks for coming to us. They put it on Kickstarter. It's been successful. And Will's been going con to con to con, pushing it. And in so many ways, like either his vacation budget, like vacation days, or his travel budget is exhausted. He's from California. That's going all the way across country. He's not going to make to PAX this year. So you're going to have to wait until probably Origins, I would guess. Probably. Maybe I'll have to have him on the submarine one time. I've been, I should have hey, him on the submarine. there you go. That's the way to do it. That's how you meet people. To, now that's an episode I'll listen to. Not the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Josh, you're the guest. I'm going to let you kick off our recent plays. You ready? I'm ready. So going off with the theme of like, you know, you're talking about shake that city where you shake it. And then depending on which way you're facing, you're able to take, you know, certain sides of a grid. Uh, Mm -hmm. I had a chance to play a cute little game called Spears of the Forest from uh, Thundergriff Games. Um, In this game, you are playing as people who are walking through the forest and you are observing spirits and different aspects of weather and nature. And depending on what journey you take, whoever has the best journey wins, meaning whoever has the most points. And so you set up this grid of all these tiles. It's a pretty substantial number of tiles. But on your turn, you have the two ends of of these tiles. There's going to be four on one end and four on the other end. On your turn, you have a choice. You either take one tile that has a certain amount of symbols on it, or you take two Mm -hmm. tiles with less of those symbols on it. And depending on what symbols you take, how you group them and how you score them is going to depend on what score you get at the end of the game. So there's a really good decision there. Do I want to take this one tile that has like three symbols on it, but there's less of it in the game. And so there's a small chance I actually might not get anything for it. Or do I take these two tiles and put my chances up, but only barely because there's a lot of tiles. So it's still going to be like a race. Mm-hmm. It's it's wonderful. It's fantastic. It looks great on the table. And it's such a simple design. Like just th- your decision. I love games with simple decisions that have so many consequences afterwards. Because if you imagine you open up this, you're only allowed to take the two tiles on the outside edge. So once you take two tiles from the outside edge or even one tile, you then expose the tile behind it to the other player. And so it really makes for this interesting decision space. Like, okay, well, what tiles do I really want? Because another aspect of the game, you have three reservation spots where you can take little tokens, say, hey, mm-hmm. I want to reserve this one so you can't touch it. But if a player really wants that tile maybe to screw with you or they need it, they can actually pay to take that reservation tile off and throw it to the side as long as they get rid of one of their reservation tiles too. Okay. It's a super simple game. And what I really like about it is the scoring. It's an all nothing scoring strategy where if you have the most of a symbol, if you have the most of a color, if you have the most of a number, you score that. You score. No one else scores it. So say like you and I are playing. You have five suns on your tiles and I have four suns. You don't get any points for that, but I get five points. And so- Only the majority. 
yeah, the majority. And I really loved it. It's such it takes like fifteen minutes to play it two players. So I think that's the best way to play it. And just having beautiful, simple production, easy rule set. I can teach this game to somebody in five minutes, and I can play it for an hour, even though it takes fifteen minutes. It's one of those games like Herbaceous or even, you know, Love and English, which I talked about, that I can sit down, relax, have a good, thinky time, and have a very fulfilling play experience. But I'm looking at this one on BGG. I got to say, okay. first of all, this thing looks awesome. The The production of it looks lovely. Tiles look great. All those little pieces look fantastic. I am seeing up here the weight 1.36. Looks like a very light game, and you express that. Would you say that it's a deep game? Is there a depth of strategy, or do you feel like that well's going to dry up after a handful of plays? I would say that there is a very deep strategy in this game. I do not think that it's a game that requires you to think a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, like it doesn't require a mental mental load. Like it's not like a Brass Birmingham or a Twilight Imperium, but it does require the player to really think about what's going to happen four turns ahead. Okay. So I would say, as far as mental capacity, it's going to be something that you're not going to get sick of immediately. You're not going to get tired of it because the randomness of the tiles being laid out, who you're playing against. And the distribution of, you know, how you're able to pull certain symbols and stuff like that really makes for an interesting gameplay experience that's variable Mm -hmm. and replayable each time. I like the idea that if you're only taking from the edge, if I take uh, if I take the card, the rightmost card from one of the rows, that opens up the card on the inside of you know the third space for my opponent. So it gives you kind of like a seven wonders dual experience where Okay, I can take this one, which means that my opponent has the option of that, or I can take this one, leaving them with that option. Like, I like when a game has that implication of what you do is going to shape what your opponent is able to do, and you have to consider that. The game, in that way, becomes interactive, even if you're not attacking each other or stealing resources, something like that. You're, you're, you're having a very direct interaction in that you are able to dictate what your opponent can do on a turn or, or limit their options in some capacity. I like that in a game. No, and this has that in spades. Like if you enjoy Seven Wonders Duel and you want something simpler, even though mm-hmm. Seven Wonders Duel is not like the heaviest of games, this is really it. And I think it's a lot more approachable theme than – Things like Seven Wonders. It has that cascading, you take this so I can take this, and everything starts opening sure, up. Sure, sure. I mean, it looks better than Seven Wonders Duel. I'm not saying it's a better game because I'm not going to you know, open that can of worms. But it really, I think the production, this is a great gateway game. Like something I would say, hey, you know, to a person who only plays Ticket to Ride or, or Dominion still in that area, like, hey, come sit down and play this with me. We're going to go back and forth and have an easy, wonderful, breezy time. And me as a gamer who plays a lot of games is going to enjoy it as well. Excellent. That was uh, Spirits of the Forest. Well, let's say we get a little bit of Scott's voice. Yeah. Brave adventurers, Mondo Games has joined our party. Get 10% off your purchase with Mondo Games using promo code LEVELUP. L-E-V-E-L-U-P. You can go straight to their website or just click the Mondo button on our homepage at levelupgamepodcast.com. Want to expand your options in Unmatched? Enjoy a solo game of A Gentle Rain. Or maybe you're getting fired up for The Thing, Infection at Outpost 31. Don't just score some loot, get 10% off with promo code LEVELUP. 
All right, Josh, I want to talk about a game called Paper Dungeons, a dungeon scrawler game. This is a 2020 game by Leandro Perez. Now, this is a roll and write, which adventurers know I'm usually not too keen on. But so the story goes, it wasn't that long ago I played Dungeons, Dice and Danger, and it left me feeling kind of wanting for more. So Paper Dungeons is one that we had at the local comic shop, and I was like, well, yeah, let's give it a try. I'm still on the quest for a, a roll and write dungeon crawler that feels kind of like a dungeon crawler. What's going on in paper dungeons? Everybody's going to get their sheet and everybody's sheet is the same. So standard roll and write in that everybody's got their sheet. You flip over a card and it tells you the lay of the dungeon. So your card is going to have walls and it's going to have water on it, that sort of thing. Everybody's sheet already has a bunch of it pre-drawn. But the card that you flip up for the scenario that you're going to play, it's going to have some extra walls to draw on. And it's going to have a spot for the number one monster and the two monster and the three monster. Because there are three big bad monsters that you're going to be facing as you play. So what's happening in a turn in Paper Dungeons? There are six dice, three white, three black, and you give them a roll and they're going to have various symbols on them, which you will allocate to fill out things on your sheet. What are we filling out? First of all, everybody rep is represented by like a party of adventurers. So you've got your standard, like your barbarian and your wizard, your cleric and your rogue, right? Yeah, Top of left of your sheet, that's where it shows. Okay, they all start at level one. If I... If I want to use the, the wizard hat die, well, I can scribble in and fill in level two next to my wizard. Hey, look, he leveled up. And then at the bottom, I get to gain a health because my party got stronger. That's one way to use your dice is leveling up your characters. Makes them a little bit stronger when you want to fight the monsters. Another way to use them is brewing a potion. This is simple. You just fill in a potion spot. You got two more health that you can use at some point. Third way to use it is crafting an artifact. And this is kind of cool. This is what's going to make players different from each other. There's this big list of like eight artifacts in the middle of your card, well, your, your paper sheet. Each one requires two scratches or two fill-ins, if you will, two dice allocated to complete the artifact. So you, if you want the first one, it's the flaming sword. You fill in two spaces using two dice in order to do so. And you've got the flaming sword. You have a plus three whenever it comes time to fight the monsters. Other ones nice. will let you do things like walk through walls or walk over water, which you normally can't do. You got to go around. You know, think of it like a moat. You walk over water with it. Very cool and asymmetric is what I really liked about that is I can approach the game one way. Somebody else might approach it differently based on that row. And then finally, you can use your dice to move around the dungeon. So you've got this grid that goes like A through G and then one through seven. Standard grid. You start at the very bottom. Any die can be used for two steps of movement. And when I say you start at the bottom, there's a whole bunch of little door symbols. So you just draw an arrow up and you draw an arrow over or wherever you want to move, right? Rooms are going to have a few things. If you see a little potion in the room, you just scratch it off and fill in a potion on your sheet. If you see a trap, looks like spikes, oh, you have to take a damage to go there. If you have the little ring symbol, well, that's a free crafting. Remember I said you can allocate a die to fill in one of the crafting spots for your artifacts. That's a means of doing it for free. Two other things you might run into, uh, well, three other things. One, you might run into a minion. Now, these aren't the main monsters, the one, two, and three. These are just little minions that are on the board. You will kill them whenever you uh, walk into their space, but they all have a little symbol, like a wizard hat and a three. And that simply means, is your wizard at level three? Yes? Okay, good. He's dead. Is he not at level three? He's still dead, but take damage equal to the difference. 
Make sense? Yeah, it does. Okay. And anytime you kill a minion, you fill that in at the bottom of the board. And as you can imagine, every time you're killing minions, your score is going up exponentially. You can also run into diamond spots. And this is another spot where there's interactivity. See, if I kill the minion that's in the very bottom left of the dungeon, well, everybody else can kill that minion by walking there too. If I collect the potion that's in the second row, second space, well, everybody else can collect that potion too. But there's gems on the board, these diamonds, and that is a race. If I enter the space with the diamond that has an E on it, I say to the table, guys, I'm collecting the E diamond. That means anybody that doesn't do it this turn, they scratch it off. It's already gone by the time they get there. And I thought that was kind of cool. Finally, we've got those three main monsters. At the end of the third, sixth, and eighth round, which is the totality of the game, you'll be fighting the monster number one, two, and three. And they all are quite simple. All it is is, do you have this much power? Yes, you killed him. You get this many points (laughs) and you lose this much health. And then it has a second threshold. Okay, so the first monster, do you have eight power? Great. You get a little reward and you take some damage. Do you have 13 power? Well, then you get an even bigger reward and you take a little bit less damage. Same thing with the third monster. What's really cool also, each of the monsters, they have a spot where like the first one, it says whatever your wizard's power is, like whatever level they're on, times it by two. So how do I determine my power? I'm just going to add up my levels. I have a barbarian at level one, a wizard at level two, a cleric at level two, and a thief at level two. One plus two plus two plus two. That's seven. I'm at seven power. But that first monster said I could double my wizard. My wizard was at two, so I'm going to count him as four. Hey, look, I could take down that monster. So you kind of have to plan ahead knowing that, okay, the next monster is going to give us double power on our cleric. So I'm going to try and level up my cleric before we fight him. Okay, so what do I what do I like about this game? I love the asymmetry that you find in those artifacts. I love the simplicity of the game. I like that it actually, unlike Dungeons, Dice, and Danger, to me, this one does a much better job of emulating dungeon crawling. You're drawing those arrows going through. There are hazards. There are traps. There's actually a dungeon and danger in this one. <laughs> well, with the traps and, and the monsters that actually fight back. I like that. It didn't feel as... Um, We'll say mechanical in its execution. Okay, I got these numbers. I cross off the numbers. It didn't feel like bingo. Yeah. When you fill up your fourth potion spot, you get an extra bonus. Or your eighth potion spot, an extra bonus. If you collect your second diamond, you get an extra bonus. There's all these little like cookies along the way like, oh, hey, you did this one too. Here's an extra thing that you get. So by the time you're, I don't know, two rounds in, and everybody's allocated six dice, everybody's different. Everybody's leveled up totally different things, collected different things. It's asymmetric. I had to tell you what my brother's cabin, just yesterday, just yesterday we were playing this one. I've played it a few times so far, a few at the hobby shop. Yesterday I had a few non-gamers in, as well as my little brother who doesn't game as much. And I'm telling you what, I didn't think a rolling right would get the table talk going, but every time the dice roll, people are going, oh, hey, look, I can do this. I can do that. And then if someone has a question, they're leaning over and, oh, what if you, and look, if you do that, you can get the sword. You can unlock that because the next, I'm very satisfied with paper dungeons. Uh, (laughs) The worry was, okay, it's, Josh, I think I'm deciding that like, I'm just not a rolling right fan, but I was pleasantly surprised with paper dungeons. I'm going to take it to the next meetup. It's an easy play. takes about 30 minutes and I'm going to recommend it. So on a scale from like, let's say, silver and gold, which is super simple, to maybe something like Fleet or Hadrian's Wall, where does that where does it fall as far as complexity and the amount of upkeep a player has to 
no do because like in, when I, I've played fleet as a role knight, it's a ton mm-hmm. of upkeep. Hadrian Wall has a ton of upkeep, whereas in silver and gold, I just flip a card and scribble it in. Well, where does it kind of fall in that weight? It's not super light, but it's like it doesn't come close to Hadrian's Wall. It is a lightweight game, and I think the reason for that is you roll the six dice and you pick three. And you are limited in what you can do based on the three that you pick. Yeah, you can use any die for a potion or for crafting an artifact or for movement. But you're not going to say, okay, I can do this one to fill in this space, which provides this resource, which triggers that thing, which bumps me up this track. Like you might find in a game like Hadrian's Wall. This one's very simple. I want to use this dice to do this. Occasionally, you'll get one extra trigger or one extra fill in. Or if you're walking around the map, you might get two or three extra things, but none of it is... None of it's difficult to understand, and you're never going to feel overwhelmed by the amount of it. That's a relief because I'm usually overwhelmed by things of that nature. Because, <laughs> like, Fleet was just, I loved it, but it was really overwhelming for teaching it to some players and stuff mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this one comes in at like age 10 plus on BGG, and I think that's appropriate. I, I think most folks aren't going to have any issue figuring it out. There's a lot of there's a lot of upfront information. I think that happens a lot with a roll and write. It's really hard to get into the game and just be like, we're going to learn as we play. Now, usually the very first roll, you kind of have to know every rule of the game. That can be a little tedious before you get started. You know, rules don't get introduced as you play like they do in okay. other games. You got to know everything up front. I'll think of this one to try then if I ever have a chance. Yeah, one eight players. It's compact. Maybe I'll maybe I'll bring it to PAX. It's funny. Last <laughs> episode, we, Ryan and I spent all time going, oh, we're going to play that one at PAX. We're going to play that one. I have a list of like 68 games that I've got to squeeze <laughs> into 12 hours. We're going to add this one on there too. That's <laughs> good. All right, Josh, you've got one on here that I've been eyeing up for some time, never played it. Tell me about Calico. Oh, Patrick, you have not experienced gaming until you've played Calico. That's not true, but it's, oh, this is, I'm just going to lead off. This is amazing. So in Calico, what you're doing is you are quilting together a quilt with buttons and different patterns in order to attract Mm -hmm. cats to come and snuggle it which okay. is an adorable, <laughs> wonderful theme. And I wish we had more snuggle centralized games. So mm-hmm. that, I, that's either here or there. So what you do in the game, you're given a player board. On that player board are three different spots. It's a, you know, I think a hexagonal, it's a hexagonal grid. And there are three different spots on the board where you are placing scoring objectives. These vary from different styles of how you place the tiles around them. So basically you place a tile there. It's going to have Tile's a... Style. Yeah, tile style, exactly. Tile style. Tile style? Tile style. Tile style. So in tile style, you're going to place down a hexagon. It has different symbols on them. A, A, B, B, C, C. Different denominations of letters. What that means, it's referring to the patterns. Either you can have you know three of a color, two of a color, and one of a color, but different mm-hmm. sets of it. Or it means you can have three of a pattern, two of a pattern, and one of a pattern because the tiles you're placing down in Calico are different colors and patterns. You can have blue paisleys, red paisleys, red florals, blue florals, yellow florals, all different things like that. But dozens of those tiles are going to be coming out of the back in the game. And these okay. three different scoring objectives throughout the board will have those different denominations. Your goal is to surround these different objectives with that pattern. That's pretty much the game. You're going to score points by surrounding these tiles either with colors or patterns or both. And depending on which ones you do, you're going to score a certain amount of points. Mm -hmm. Uh, You also get points for connecting different colors together. 
So if you have like three blues together, you get a button. That's going to be worth three points at the end of the game. If you have three greens together, you're going to get a green button. That's going to be worth three points at the end of the game. Also, yeah. you have different cats, which comes from the, the name Calico. You have different cats who like specific patterns. So, hey, this cat likes to have florals together. He likes to have florals together. So if you get seven floral tiles connected, you're going to get nine points at the end of the game. And you get a little cat meeple, little cat cutout token on there so that it's smelling it because it loves your lo- loves your quilt so much. Oh, kitty. So your turn is very simple. On your turn, you have two tiles in your inventory. You're going to place mm-hmm. one on your board. And then there's three tiles in the center of the table. You're going to take one of those tiles and draft it after that and then replenish from the bag. And that's all you're doing the entire game. It's very simple. Patrick, never have I had a more excruciating and painstaking experience in a game than I've had in Calico. Oh, yeah? I've I've played Fury of Dracula. I've played Hunt for the Ring. (laughs) I have played, you know, The Night Cage. Games that bleed intense, intense moments. I have never felt my heartbeat faster than I was playing Calico. I've heard it's very restrictive. Like there's a lot of thought that you have to put into each of your plays. It is so restrictive. I mean, I love that in a game that that when 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 you're able to design a game that starts off with a funnel of possibilities and Mm -hmm. then as you play and you you add water, which is gameplay time to it, and it slowly swirls and swirls and it goes down into a straight stream. That is wonderful. It's you, you are starting off with this empty canvas and as you make decisions, slowly you're restricting yourself, but it's not the game's fault. You are making all the decisions. That idea of like, okay, I placed this. I'm fine. Okay. I'm still fine. And this tile is not preferable, but I can still do it. And this is not great. I'm just going to shove this uh aside. Yeah. (laughs) Then there's that (laughs) damn it moment that happens. You're like, dang it. The tile that I need, the perfect tile that's going to score me 15 points Joe Roger just took it from me, and now I have him stuck, hoping and praying that a tile comes out that I need. I like it is, that. Oh, it's so good. I think you would dig this game a lot, Patrick. Some people make comparisons, I think, unfairly to like Cascadia. I was going to mm. bring that up. This gets compared to Cascadia, and I think people tend to like Cascadia because it doesn't impose restrictions on you as you continue. That Anytime I see the comparisons, well, I prefer Cascadia because – it doesn't do these restrictions. You know, I, I can play the game, but I feel like that might make it lack this element that you're talking about. And yeah, that's horse manure. <laughs> it's, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm with you guys. I don't get the hype around Cascadia. I mean, I understand for like, when I look at it objectively, yeah, I can get why people love Cascadia. And, and we but, liked it. We didn't dislike it. We just, it was more of the, uh, we wanted to play pump the brakes, temper the expectations to get like, I felt <sighs> I feel like sometimes when a game starts getting the hype going, it's like a snowball effect. Like, oh, Dice Tower said it's good. So I feel like there's a handful of reviewers that are just going to like follow suit. Like, I don't dare not agree with Secret Cabal said it's good. So I got to say it's good. And like, it feels neat sometimes to be like, oh, I'm going to try and be edgy. But usually you can't because like they say a game's good. You know what? It's usually good. But every now and then when one doesn't just like blow me away like it does for someone else, I do like to like, I don't know, make it a point to to bring it up. Oh, boy, hold on. This isn't that great. Pat's going to save the day and tell you how it is, right? <laughs> you know, you almost feel, I feel important when I do that. But we didn't dislike the game, but you, know, you said it. We weren't uh, blown away. Yeah. For me, I actively dislike the game. Oh. It's, I, I really do. Like, I, I've tried it two or three times solo. Mm-hmm. So maybe a multiplayer experience is, is different. Okay. But I, act, I actively disliked it. Like I never felt any of my decisions mattered. 
It was kind of like, okay, well, because it's so open and it's so non-restrictive, the creativity that I, I, people plow the game about, they say, oh, it's so, I feel so creative, creative. It's like, I didn't feel it. You know, I'm taking this land and this animal I don't need. It's a weird thing with me. I don't want a thing I want when I'm making a decision and then a thing I don't want. I want to have one or the other. And with Calico, bringing it back to Calico, the piece I'm going to take is the piece that I want. I'm not getting anything besides that. Like, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like, it may not be the piece I prefer, but it's the piece that I chose and there's no baggage with that. I okay. am making the conscious decision to bring it to my, you know, my tableau, my inventory. And I am knowing that the consequences of that is that I eventually probably going to have to place this piece. I find okay. that decision okay. and that process of events a lot more interesting than the things in, in Cascadia. I don't want this to turn a bash off Cascadia session, but I really think the restrictiveness of Calico elevates it to a point where it's just a more enjoyable experience with me. I think creativity thrives with restrictions. And because of that, I have not had a bad game of Calico. So like I've scored terribly. I've had horrible like scoring, but I've never had a not a great time playing this game. And people I play okay. with have always loved it too. You know, Calico means a cat of three colors. That's tricolor cat is a calico cat. Look at the cover of that box. That is a two-color cat, or a one with a little bit of lighter shading. That is not a calico cat on the box. Yeah, guilty. It's not. <laughs> I think that was actually a complaint by some people. I think I may have saw a review once that they knocked it down to not perfect because it wasn't oh, a calico cat. Oh, for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I legitimately think I saw a review. It's probably in – there's thousands of reviews for calico at this point. But like, I thought I saw no a review kidding. was like, seven, it's not a calico cat in the front. It's like, get over yourself. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's Calico from AEG and Flat Out Games. Patrick. Oh, hold, hold on, oh. hold on. Breaking Sorry. news. Breaking news. Hold the phone. This one's important. In it comes. Battle lines will be drawn. Heroes will rise. Artifacts and enchantments of mythical lore come to the world of magic. The Gathering. Only the strongest will wield the newest, most powerful cards ever. Wizards of the Coast, in conjunction with Hasbro, present Magic the Gathering Secret Lair Peppa Pig Edition. Fifteen full art, textless, no art, all text, magic cards from the world of Peppa Pig. Bring fire and pyro to a new level when you cast Daddy Pig. Yes, I am a bit of an expert at these things. Take your opponents to school with Madame Gazelle. Yes, it is wonderful. Nuke the board with Dinosaur. Dinosaur. And of course, each order of this secret lair gets you the exclusive mythic planeswalker, Peppa Pig. This spring, don't just win the game, stomp your opponent around in muddy puddles. I have got to get an Emily Elephant full art foil card for this secret. How do you guys like 
get this good stuff. I'm telling you what, man, it, it, it takes time. You stick with it. And before you know it, you're going to get these big bomb moments where you get to unveil the new hotness. I need a daddy pig planeswalker. <laughs> I, I need it. He is a bit of an expert. All right. <laughs> I got one more I want to talk about today, and that's going to be Space Station Phoenix. This is from Gabriel Cohn, published by Rio Grande Games in 2022. First and foremost, the space station, the actual real space station, flies around the world, get this, every 90 minutes. And if you do the math, that puts it at five miles per second. Five miles per second. Yeah, how about that? That means in the space of just 24 hours, the space station makes 16 orbits of Earth, traveling through 16 sunrises and sunsets. That's fast. That is some fast. Yeah, how about that? All right, Space Station Phoenix. This is a game that I was hearing some buzz about sometime around Origins. Kind of flew under the radar. Like I'd hear some good chatter about it, but I'd never actually see the box for sale or the game set up on the table. Last day of Origins rolls around, managed to nab a copy and take it home with me. The hook here, you start the game with the best resource engine you're ever going to have. And then progressively, you're deconstructing it until the game ends. This is evident in the nine ships that you start with, several of which you're actually going to be dismantling for parts throughout the game. Okay. At its core, we got a worker placement resource management game, and it starts like this. Everybody gets five ships. They're all the same from player to player. They're just your basic ships. And then you get a couple of upgraded ships, and then you get a couple more that are even better than that. So you have nine ships. You also start with a space station tile. It's just a hex, but it's going to get expanded throughout gameplay from a market of extensions. So picture your hex, and you can build off three wings from this hex, each with three spaces. So you want to build off this wing, space number one, then space number two, then space, and you just put them next to the hex, right? And that all comes from a market. Each uh, each of these little space station wing add-ons that you're going to be putting on, of course, is going to be slightly asymmetric compared to everyone else. Now, a lot of the competitive nature of the game stems from what's called the diplomacy board. It has four different tracks on it, each containing a marker for each player, and basically being higher than the other players on any given track is going to give you some bonuses when someone else takes that action. So what's turn looking like? Honestly, for a game that's a bit higher than mid-weight, a turn's actually pretty easy to grasp. Everybody's got an action marker, and on your turn, you just put it on a location and you carry out its actions. And most of the actions are going to be found on your ships. Like you simply put the marker on your ship and you pay the cost of taking that action and then you carry it out. But in Space Station Phoenix, here's one of the big hooks. You're allowed to put your marker on someone else's ship, taking what would otherwise be their ability. But whenever you make the payment for taking that action, you pay them a little bit in the process. What are the actions? Without getting into too much detail, we're not going to teach the whole game. They involve trading resources with the bank, moving up on the diplomacy track, or gaining some resources. But there are a couple that specifically make the game what it is. First, as you build your space station, you're going to need to man it with humans or aliens. Aliens are gained through a transport action, like you're sending in workers from other planets. Hey, you guys, we need you to go and man the space station, right? Humans, on the other hand, they're gained through a Terran expedition action, which is like emulating your ship kind of hovering over Earth and just observing, but every now and then like like tractor, grabbing a human and uh, abducting them up to work on the station. The other action that makes this game what it is, the ability to dismantle your ships. So you have those nine at the start of the game, but you're going to need metal to build the station. And one of the easiest, most reliable ways to get it 
is from taking apart one of your ships. In doing so, yeah, you're going to be limiting your options moving forward. It's no longer an action space in the game, and you're potentially cutting off someone else who is eyeing it up. So if in the resources that I'm trying to gather, I really need water, but I only have my basic water ship. None of my upgraded ships provide water. I've been using Scott's ship. I've been using my action mark. I'm going to place over there, and I'm going to use his ship to get my water. That's going to be my sneak away of doing it. Then Scott dismantles that ship. Uh-oh. I suddenly, I'm back to basics, no pun intended, for getting water. I like that in the game. Finally, you can opt for an income turn, which is similar to like a terraforming Mars, where eventually you just run out of resources to pay for actions to do, so you take income. It's generated from the hex on your space station and all the other expansions that you've added to it. So what do I like here? First and foremost, space stations, your starting hex, that's asymmetric, and there are a ton of them. The expansion tiles, those are chosen from random from a big old stack so that the market always has different expansions that you're going to be adding onto your station. And for the most part, these are not like small talk variables. Most of them are game changing. I like that. Further, the ships that you start with after those five basic, you have a couple of level twos and a couple of level threes. You can distribute those randomly at the start of play or you can draft them. Put them in the middle of the table and everybody can shape their strategy. Now, obviously, everybody needs to know what they're doing in the game, but I love that. It's kind of like playing Terraforming Mars with the prelude. Getting to pick your ships in this, say, okay, I know I'm going to be really good at getting water and getting aliens to man my station because I took these two ships and I'm really good at it. And if I'm not using them, somebody else is going to be paying me to use them. I like that. So what don't I like? There's only one thing here that I don't like about this game. Uh, It's a very good game. There's one small exception, and that's the length of play. All right. Mm. BGG lists this game at an hour to two hours for a game. But, oh, boy, Josh, I've taught this two times, played it three, and I don't think that I've had it under two hours yet. Uh, Uh, Even going over three hours for a play, which isn't a problem per se. You know I like lengthy games. I'm I'm happy to play a a good lengthy game. The issue with the length of Space Station Phoenix is that the second half of the game doesn't introduce anything differentiating or for that matter, exciting. It's very much going through the motions. begins to feel like the old stereotype cube pusher because you're just doing the same thing trying to get to the finish line. I found that it's so much fun taking actions, beginning to build out that space station, but somewhere around an hour and a half, it's more of the same over and over. Overall, it's a decent game and it's a fun game with a lot of asymmetry. It's got a lot of things that I like, but it just stayed on the table every time I've played it. It's been on the table a little bit longer than I would have liked. Thinking maybe house rule it and be like, you know, we're not going to play to this many points or we're going to close in on one of those end game stipulations so that it happens a little bit sooner. So you're talking about how the engine gets smaller and we were, you know, I, we made the, I made the comment before that with restrictions comes creativity Creativity mm-hmm. thrives in restrictions. Did you find that as the engine got smaller, your decisions got more interesting and you enjoyed it more? It can. The, the problem is when you want to dismantle a ship, if you have this really powerful ship, you're probably not going to dismantle that one. You're going to dismantle one of your basic ships. Now, you're going to get more metal for one of the better ships, but ideally you want to dismantle one that's not one of those better ships. Interestingly, and I didn't point this out when I was uh, talking about it, if Scott takes one of my ships, he puts his action marker on my ship, he makes the payment for that ship, that payment sits on that card. 
right? That's how the game notates that that card has been used this round. So when my turn comes around, I'm looking at that chip. I can't use it. It's already been used as evidenced by the resources that are sitting on it. Maybe more interesting would be the fact that if someone is using someone else's ships, they're cutting off anyone else. Like once a ship is taken, an action is taken on a, on a spot, it's basically effectively done for the round. And that introduces okay. a timing element. I like that. Typically though, no, you're not going to find yourself overly restricted because you got rid of a ship that you super duper needed because that's not the one that you get rid of. That's fair. So you think you would have enjoyed this game if it was like one hour less or even maybe 45 minutes less? If the game plays in two and a half hours, I think it would be a top game of the year for me if okay, it could get wow. down to an hour and a half. The problem is it is two and a half. And I'm telling you, you ain't doing much different in that last 30, 40% of the game. And that to me is what took it down to, uh, it's good, not great. So what, what would you change to make it shorter? Something like maybe like a actually game you want to take out or something to put in to try to speed that along? The stipulations are either like you have three different pools of aliens and they're represented by triangular cubes, like cylindrical cubes and square cubes. The humans are, they're blue and they're, they're a different shape as well. So either the humans run out or one of the pools of aliens run out or somebody completes their space station. That hex has all nine attachments to it. I would sooner say, you know what, if somebody has seven attachments or if any of the alien cube pools is down to just four aliens left, something like that, you could artificially change change the timing for the end game trigger. I would tinker with that, but I'm also the kind of person that's like, I just don't care enough. (laughs) I I like the game. If this was the only game I had in my house and the only one that I ever played. Oh yeah, I would, I would do that. And it'd be a fine game. I'd be delighted to get back to it, but there's always the next game. And there's always other things that I'm willing to play that I'm not the type that's going to house rule and modify it until it's to my liking. Does that make sense? No, that's totally understandable. I mean, house ruling games is something that I do, but that's because I like doing it. I don't think anyone should, in order to enjoy games, should have to do that, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Fair point. You know, normally I know Scott grumbles. He goes, ugh, that guy. But I am elated to hear that boy. You know, pull ah. your trumpet away because I love talking about the top 100. You know what? You can stay. I, I, it's about time he gets some credit. He's been working for free. So. <laughs> I know. It is that time. Let's go over top 100. Prime Movers. Pandemic Legacy is up three spots to number 56. Falling Stars. Sometimes we don't do this because we don't have any. But Falling Stars means a game has gone down by at least two spots. So what's gone down to? We got a bunch. Star Wars Imperial Assault, down two to number 58. Lahav, down two to 59. Azul, down two to 67. Five Tribes is down two to 74. Fields of Arl, down two to number 75. And Lord of the Rings, Journey in Middle-Earth, down two to number 100. And it is since, since I took these notes, it's been booted out. It is no longer in the top 100. Hang on by a thread. Twilight Imperium 3rd Edition is at 99. Lorenzo Magnifico is at 100. Josh, we don't have any debuts in the top 100 this time. Top 10 trends. War of the Rings 2nd Edition bumped up to number 9, while Gaia Project is down 1 to number 10. New Highest Peaks. These games are higher than they've ever been. You ready? Ready. War of the Rings 2nd Edition, number 9. Dune Imperium, up to 14. Clank Legacy. Have you done Clank Legacy yet? I've never done Clank before. What is the matter with you? 
You've never done Clank. I, I'm not a big fan of deck builders. Like I have a few oh. of them, but everyone says I would love Clank just based okay. on my preferences. My plan is to pick up Clank Catacombs while we're at PAX. So I definitely want to play that. If you have the opportunity to play that with me, that would be delightful. I am literally almost free most of the weekend. So like I work in the yes. morning. So just 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 message me. I'll play in Clank Catacombs because that's a tile lane Clank and that sounds amazing. Well, Clank Legacy is up to number 24. Pandemic Legacy Season 0, as we mentioned, up to number 56. Lisboa, 57. Great Western Trail 2nd Edition. Cracked the top 100 just a, what, two months back? It's up to number 65. Kanban EV, 73. Sleeping Gods up to 79. Beyond the Sun is at number 90. And Cthulhu Death May Die is up to 93. One of my favorite things in the top 100 update is Happy Birthdays. Pandemic Legacy Season 0, one year. Underwater Cities, three years. Agricola, revised, four years. Fields of Arl, seven years. Dominion, Intrigue, the uh, the standalone Intrigue Dominion box has been on there for 12 years. Wow. Seven Wonders, 12 years. Laha, 14 years. Race for the Galaxy, 15. And Agricola, good old Agricola, 15 years. That is a long time to be in the top 100. Especially with the output of great games coming out, like it just shows like these games are just so well designed and so deserving of like the kind of the clout. Like if they walk into a room or a club, everyone stares at them for a reason. That's the kind of games these are. <laughs> you know, it is interesting though. Uh, so, so many new games, like Beyond the Sun, Sleeping Gods, Cthulhu Death May Die. These are all new entries. Dune Imperium, Arnak. These are all new to the to the top 100. That means that old things are getting kicked out. I wonder if we're going to see as games keep like coming out of a fire hose. Is it going to be like we just saw with Lord of the Rings Journeys in Middle Earth? The game isn't five years old, and in its lifetime already, it has cracked the top 100 and since fallen out. I wonder if that's going to be a trend that we start to notice with so many games, so many good games coming out. I really think it is. Like, I really think that we're going to see who actually... Because one thing that the BGG 100 does is that it's also a hype train at some point. Yeah, like oh sometimes, yeah. Sometimes they'll just like pump stuff in, and because of the hype, it'll break the top 100. I really think we're going to see after, you know, the hype goes away after a couple of years, what games are truly great. So things like Ark Nova, for instance, that mm-hmm. might be one that survives the hype train just because of how much. Yeah. How I think much that one's a survivor. Has. Yeah. But things like, you know, you look all the way down to like the bottom of the, the pack. Look at games like, you know, you know, Architects of the West Kingdom. Is that one going to stay? Like, I like Architects of the West Kingdom, but yeah, it was, there, was like a lot it of, there was a lot of hype behind it because it was the follow-up to, you know, Raiders of the North Sea in that series with, you know, Shem Phillips. Is it going to stay? I don't know. It's not beating things like Lords of Waterdeep, which is an exceptionally easier worker placement game. That game's been on there forever. So, right. you know, things like that I, I always like thinking about. Maybe the time of games being in the top 100 for 10 years. If you put out a game in 2005 and it made the top 100, there's a decent shot that it's going to be in there for many years. Now, if a game cracks top 100, it's got to have staying power to get more than like three years. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And that's what makes games like Ark Nova, Dune Imperium so special is because they don't just get to like 80 and 60 like some other games do. They shop the top 20, and the top 20 is a very difficult place to get out of when it comes to the BG Top 100. Hey, 
Howdy, hey adventurers, and welcome to today's walkthrough of The Stuff of Legend, designed by Kevin Wilson and released by 3WS Games. As allied forces fight the enemy on Europe's war-torn beaches, another battle begins in a child's bedroom in Brooklyn, when the nightmarish boogeyman snatches a boy and takes him to the realm of the dark. The child's playthings, led by the toy soldier known as the Colonel, band together to stage a daring rescue. On their perilous mission, they will confront the boy's bitter and forgotten toys, as well as betrayal in their own ranks. In The Stuff of Legend, each player takes on the role of one of the boy's loyal toys, each with their own unique abilities. Players work cooperatively scurrying through the dark in the search of the boy before the boogeyman can escape with him. Players beware, though. Through the course of the game, your allegiance may change, and at any point one of your fellow players can be secretly working against you for the wicked boogeyman. During setup, players will select one of these toys to take on as their avatar or the person they're playing through the game. You've got people like Chester, who is a mighty jack-in-the-box warrior, Max, a barbaric giant teddy bear who rips things apart, and even the princess, who is a mighty Native American warrior. Players will select what character they wish to play throughout the game, and then they will be assigned allegiance cards. These cards will be given to each player to tell them whether they are loyal to the party and the boy, or to the boogeyman. Now this may change throughout the game, but this is what you will start with to kind of get things going. Players will then lay out location cards and event cards that correlate with those locations. This will be important and will influence the decisions you make throughout the game. After that, players set the boogeyman to his power ranking, put the boy marker on the appropriate player mark to determine how long you have in the game, distribute cards to each player for their starting hand, and you are ready to go. In this stuff of legends, the players will have three actions to take on their turns. These actions range from investigating cards, to playing cards, to moving throughout the map, to even attacking minions of the boogeyman. The whole point of the game is to go from location to location in order to find resources and powers to try to figure out the location of the exit. The exit is important because the whole point of the game is to find this exit because that is where the boy is located. Now there are four exits in the game at various points throughout the board. Exit tokens, being seven of them, are labeled 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. At the beginning of the game, you randomly put out four of these numbers. The whole point of the game is to figure out what is the highest... I'd say it, the highest number throughout these four numbers. So if the seven's on the board, most of the time it's going to be the seven. However, there's a twist. If the one, the number one, is located on the board with the seven, the number one is the actual real exit. So with these cards and events, you'll have the opportunity to sometimes peek at these different exit tokens and try to convey information to the other players what that token is. Now, whether the players believe you or not is totally up to them. The game also has an interesting mechanic where if you are unsure what to do as a group, you can do a voting system. Players, if they cannot come to a consensus, will vote on the count of three by either putting a thumbs up or a thumbs down to determine what the group should do next. In a case of a tie, there is always a tiebreaker who carries a card known as the Colonel's Rifle. This ensures so there's no clog in the gameplay and things keep going smoothly. After the players have their turn, it then moves on to the Boogeyman phase, and this is never good. During the Boogeyman phase, the minions of the Boogeyman will either attack the players or follow them to the nearest location where they are at. Boogeyman cards may also come into play here, which really, really mess with the players and kind of handicap their ability to do certain things. And if worse comes to worse, it may even move the boy tracker along to where the boy is actually lost and the game is over. This is a very basic overview of what happens in the game. There is also mechanics for different abilities that each of the characters have. There is mechanisms for when you take wounds and drawing cards and flipping coins to determine damage and what happens to you. 
Overall, you got this general sense of what's actually going on in the game. Players go from location to location, resolve a fence, fight minions, and try to figure out what the exit is. Now that you have the run through, let's go ahead back and see what our thoughts are on the stuff of legend. Now that the boy is fast asleep, I've come to take him to darkness deep. So long as no one finds the door, they will not see him anymore. <laughs> you guys, the boy oh, is I gone. Oh, no, our boy. No. We have to save him. Quackers, Max, Percy, come with me. Let's find our boy. Well, thank you, Josh, for the walkthrough of today's review game, The Stuff of Legend. Adventurers, as you know, we like to break down our games in the 8-bit breakdown, where we look at 8 bits, starting with the art and components and wrapping it up with Was It Fun? And Who's It For? So bit number one, Josh, we're going to talk a little art and components. What'd you think? Mwah, chef's kiss. Chef's oh, kiss. Oh, no. You listened to my last episode where I said that's pompous and I hate it. Yes, I did. <laughs> you knew what you and were doing. Mwah, Come mwah, on. Mwah, mwah. You know, five-star <sighs> chef kiss. This I'm is so- why my first thought was Will, then Ryan. <laughs> Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, this yeah. is why you guys send me out to explore for unknown games. That's why I'm explorer, Josh, so I can just be out of the way. <laughs> you, you, you come back to our RPG encampment, and you're like, all right, guys, I rejoined the group. And we're like, get him out of here. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not one guy in the D&D group who's like has a girlfriend and is trying to like keep him away from D&D, but comes back every two months like, what's going on? Guess what? I Guess what adventures I've been on? Hoi doi doi. Anyways. Art um, and components. What art and got? components. Okay, so I played the deluxe version, just for mm-hmm. full closure. And the deluxe version is fantastic. Um, it comes with miniatures, plastic, plastic components, and in in the game you you are fighting against the boogeyman's forces, obviously. And so you have like cowboys who are like holding the hell and shooting their guns, and these guys will follow you around the map. Oh, it, it's so great! Like you could have standees, that's fine. But even if you have the standees, we played standees at uh, oh geez when you did a demo for us at was that Origins or Gen Con? It was Origins, yeah. At Origins, we had standees, and I thought they were they were wonderful. I mean, it's a standee. You know, if you prefer a miniature, the standee is not going to be wonderful. But they're big. They're not like real little crummy standees. They're big and vibrant. I like that. Yeah, no, they're they're super good. I mean, the the design of the miniatures and the design of the standees are both excellent. We have beautiful, beautiful artwork. I mean, I have read the stuff of Legend comic book, at least the first mm-hmm. part of it, and they capture that world so. Well, I mean, I love the art style. Like the the characters have so much personality. You know, they, they, these are toys, obviously, but there's so much personality behind their real life coming alive characters. Like you can tell that Jester is a little bit crazy, but he's also really awesome. You can t- you can see the intelligence behind Percy and the ferocity and the stuffed animal and the the, the hope that's in Quackers. It's they just nailed it. <laughs> they nailed it. You played Quackers, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, remember. it was Quackers. You know what? We're, we're starting to tap into bit number two already. So let's wrap up art and components. Uh, you know what? I don't think that there's anything that's going to disappoint anyone. It didn't blow me away, but I don't think that this is a game that's meant to. This isn't uh, This isn't a dungeon crawler where you want the highest quality miniatures you've ever seen. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is a board game. It's played on the board. It's a hidden trader style game. And you know the cards were not low quality. 
I don't recall them being linen finished or, you know, they, they again, they blew me away, but nothing was like, oh, this, this kind of sucks. Or I wish they would have made this better. Yeah. If you break it down, like which we're doing, if you like zoom in, yeah, nothing's going to, nothing's outstanding. I think just me looking at the entire package, I'm just like, oh yes, this is exactly what I want. You started to tap into bit number two, the theme and immersion. I think you're right. I think they they captured exactly what they were trying to do. And I love what they're trying to do. We have this premise of staving off the boogeyman, protecting the little boy. Correct me if I'm wrong. You got sucked into the closet by the boogeyman and you are the noble toys that are going in. You're going to get in that closet. You're going to find out where they went. You're going to rescue him. You're his toys and you're going to rescue them. That's neat. That's unique. That's charming. If you don't love that, you got no soul, right? <laughs> yeah, you, you're you're dead. You're you're not a person. You are you're a cephalopod or something like that. Yeah, this, way this to go, really, adventurer. <laughs> this really is a great theme. I think that it does suffer a little bit in the fact that I think you appreciate it more if you read the comic. Obviously, so fans of the comic book will love this. And I had the opportunity to read it before I actually taught. I read the little omnibus they had there. And Mm -hmm. the first omnibus covers basically the entire game. I was like, wow, this is blowing me away how they incorporate such little great details from the comic into this game. But if you haven't read it, you know, you may not understand like, oh, it's so cool. I get to go to Hopscotch and this is what I'm doing in Hopscotch because Hopscotch is like this. And you know, that may not resonate. But the idea of you going through and saving the toys and some of the themes of Who's the traitor? Who's on the boogeyman's side? Who can I trust? It does come through. Well, I can give the perspective of having not read the comic book. And to me, I felt like there are drops of theme through the locations, the cards. But to me, I thought the game above the table is where the immersion side of it comes in. You know, we always think theme and immersion because they're two different things. Theme is what's the theme that they put onto the game? The immersion is how much do I feel like I'm in that world that they're trying to put me in? And, you know, some games, the style of a game is going to cater better to it. Like a game like Azul, no one's going to feel like they're in the world of Azul and that's okay. But we do like to separate the two. There's immersion here, like I don't feel like a duck going into a closet, obviously, (laughs) but I do feel like I'm part of this party that's trying to work together in the game above the table with the other players using our brains working together. There's a lot of voting going on in this game. You want to talk about getting into a game when everybody's trying to make up their mind. Okay, we can go this way or that way. Call a vote. Oh man, now suddenly I'm in the game. I'm a piece in the game. Oh, I get to vote. I like that. And I thought they did a fantastic job. Yeah. Definitely. Complexity is bit number three. We want to talk about how difficult is this game to figure out? I'll leave this one. There's not a lot of mechanical complexity. But with that, I thought there also wasn't a whole lot of in-game decision complexity, right? There's a bit of setup at the start that I think might make the game a little bit cumbersome, but I don't think that that made it more difficult to learn or figure out. I think that generally speaking on your turn, it's very easy to, okay, I'm going to do a thing and then pass, right? Sometimes the game is quite simple. Maybe I don't want to say lacking in complexity because whenever you do have that game above the table, when you're calling votes and trying to work together, that's an intangible. That's an amount of complexity that you can't measure when you read a rule book, right? What do you think complexity? I think you're hit on the head. It's a social complexity. I mean, what mm-hmm. you're actually doing in this game is moving from point to point, trying to find the cards you need in order to figure out which of the exits is the correct exit. Right. So, Or if you're the, the traitor, you're trying to you know, bamboozle the group so that they don't. Yeah, you're trying to – and that's where I think the complexity of this game actually does come in. 
is that, you know, it's really not hard. You go through your hero phase, do your actions. The next phase, the Boogeyman does his stuff, and you repeat that process over and over again. Not very difficult. But what's happening above the table, like you said, is where the complexity is like, why would we make, where are we going to go next is the big question in the game. And if with a big, which a big player account, there's going to have a lot of opinions. And trying to figure out which opinion is trying to betray you is so juicy. Just watching it. Like when I was watching your group and two other groups at the same time, the the traders in one the group next to you when you're playing were so good. They were mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't know they were traders the entire time. We were, no one knew, but they were so good at knowing when to like, hey, let's boop, I'm gonna pitch you the pitchfork this way because I want this to happen so that you don't get to the exit in time. And your group when it was happening, you know, I could see everybody was trying to figure out who they can trust. And that is beautiful to watch and to play through. Oh. Absolutely. The trader in our game was actually going kind of light. You know, sometimes if you're the trader, you just play along and you play along really nicely so that no one suspects you. And then like you kind of wait and strike while the iron's hot. I think he was playing that way. And by the time his opportunity came to strike, we had him figured out any, like we had all done enough nice things that it was like, okay, I know it's not her. I know it's not me, obviously. That guy's been doing the right thing the whole time. Like he basically... The iron was never hot. Does that make sense? Because yeah, it wasn't hot until it was hot, which was great. Like there were you guys were cooperating the whole time. It wasn't obvious. Yeah, who the trade he was. was very cooperative. Yeah, but at the very last like ten minutes of the game, it became like you this entire time. It became a bland game. Like you guys are trying to figure out because you're at that pivotal decision. Like which exit mm-hmm. do we take? You know, which exit do the core? Which path do we take? Because this going to affect the rest of the game. I mean, if you were just to play this like mechanically without talking, the game takes twenty minutes. It was like a 15-minute discussion you guys were having about this one move. But yeah, it our didn't game f- probably won a full hour, hour and a half, I want to say. Something like that. It was it was wonderful to watch you guys you know, have that experience of trying to figure out, okay, who do I actually trust here? Who do I actually trust? <laughs> it's especially funny whenever it's a group of six strangers. I think two of the people there knew each other, and then everyone else, because this is at a convention, did not. Dude, I can't wait can't wait to get this on the table with Mike and Jason and Scott and my brothers. And it's like, okay, we all know each other, right? And they all know, like, I'm, I'm, this is going to sound terrible. I, I'm the snake of our group. Like I love <laughs> when I'm the traitor. Cause I, I like, I like, I like backstabbing in games. I'll never pass an opportunity to backstab adventure. If you ever play a game with me, <laughs> And I make a deal like, you don't attack me here. I won't attack you there. I promise you, I'm going to attack you. I get more, I get more joy out of that than winning a game. Never <laughs> trust a just why. Patrick. It's a character flaw. <laughs> Let's talk rulebook and learning curve. Now, I'm going to leave the rulebook to you. I haven't seen it. You've taught the game several times. I assume you've been in and out of that rulebook. Tell me, what do you think about it? Yeah, so the rulebook I had was a prototype. I will say that. Um, and there were some corrections that Mike, who was the developer at Third World Studios, was able to teach me. Mm-hmm. The rulebook was super simple to get through. For me, having to have like an hour to learn the game and then teach it for three days straight, pretty much. That's intimidating. Was, it is very intimidating. And I did mess up. I will say that. There were some things I wasn't clear about and I got wrong, which affected some people's play of it. Not negatively, though. There were some things that little details that I missed that made it hard for the people to play, not because it was complex, just because it would have to do with how the minions interact with you and how they chase you and stuff like that. Okay. okay. But looking, but I could easily reference where I looked back to. It's like, okay, well, how do minions work? This is this is taking a lot longer. It's a lot harder than it should be. Did I teach it wrong? I flip it. Okay, it's right there. That's what happens. 
And so I it was it, it wasn't amazing and mind blowing. It was a fine rule book. It did what it had to do. And there might be some extraneous details in there that I think they're trimming down that I actually, you know, talk to Mike about and he might be taking out. But I do believe that the rule book is nothing to, you know, toot the horn about. But it's fine. You I, I if I can learn a game without having someone teach me, which I had to do, it's a good rule book. To me, the criteria for judging a rule book, like it's 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 almost never that I'm going to say, wow, this rule book blew me away because they, they don't. It's a rule book. The only thing that a rule book can do is when it does something wrong, right? Like an offensive yeah. lineman. If you don't notice the offensive lineman in a football game, that's probably a good thing. And it means they're doing their job. Uh, and in this case, I'm glad to hear that the rule book did not seem to get in the way of the gameplay. Let's talk a little bit of learning curve. And I'll take this side because I was on the learning end. And I got to tell you, I think after two rounds everybody at the table is going to know what they're doing. You might flip a location card that's more unique than others. And you might be like, oh, okay, wait, we got a reference. Just make sure we know what that word means on this card. That's about it. Other than that, it's not a difficult game to understand what you're doing within. No, it really isn't. And what makes it really nice is that this game, I think, does a really good job of handling the quarterbacking problem that happens in cooperative games sometimes or semi-cooperative mm-hmm. games. Where you know you have three actions on your turn and there's six heroes. So one, two, three, you pick three characters to perform an action. Then the other three have to go before the other players go the next round. It's alternating. So if I yeah. got to go this round, then I don't get to go next round. It's the other three characters. I'm one of the three that went now. I don't get to go next. Exactly. And that pushes the other players are able to have to learn the game and how the tempo is going, which, you know, in some cooperative games, you can sit there the entire time and not really know what's going on. It's like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. This game, I think, has a nice gentle push to you know encourage the players to all know how the game is working. To understand what they're doing. And that hidden traitor thing, that makes it a little bit more difficult to quarterback too. Because if somebody's over-aggressively quarterbacking, well, that's going to raise some suspicions. Wait, why are you trying to tell everyone what to do? You know what I mean? That's kind of like a built-in deterrent uh, whenever you have that hidden traitor. I like Absolutely. That. Trash bit number five is all about where is the meat? We've got a game where our party's trying to get from one end of the map to the other and get out the right door. But somewhere amongst there, there's got to be something that keeps the gamers engaged and having a good time. Where is it? I think we talked about it already. It's the above table experience. All right. These, these, that's where the meat is. I really think this game sings at like five and six players. It plays five, I've played games of three. It actually works really well, surprisingly. But at hmm. five and six players, what it does is that you know there's at least one traitor for sure. Where they add uncertainties, there may or may not be a second traitor. Right. Which right. I really like the fact that, you know, okay, I know there's one person who I can't trust among here, but there might be two. Yeah. And that's so, <laughs> so good. The, the, the social interaction that is happening at the table, especially as you get deeper and deeper into the game and you get closer and closer to the exits – really is the meat of the game, trying to understand other players' actions. And when a game is able to have you focus on what other people are doing, it really becomes, in my opinion, the meat of the game. You're focusing on what the other players' actions are doing to infect the entire table. And I think that's where we're going to find, the, the where I find the fun of the game is trying to figure out why would they do it, why are they doing what they're doing, and how does it affect the rest of the party? Yeah, figuring out the motivations. That is the meat. And you know what? That that probably reigns true for most hidden trader games. They typically are very light mechanical games. You look at something like Shadows Over Camelot, you're just 
making pairs, three of a kind. Very, very simple. And you have like two actions on your turn. It's so simple, but it needs to be because your brain is trying to figure out motivations of other people. Absolutely. I think that's, I think this game has that in spades. I think it does a really good job and it has a really good scalable player count. Like I was able to teach games from three to six players and at three players, it has that aspect. There may or may not be a trader. It's not like there's absolutely one trader. It's like, no, there may or may not be a trader amongst you three. We'll mm-hmm. have to figure You have to figure it out. And so it scales really well. So they really got what makes this game really fun and really enjoyable to work at a variety of player counts that no matter what your play table space may be, you're going to have a good time. Well, you're going to have a good time with it. But for how long? Let's talk the replayability and variability of the stuff of Legend. Josh, I suppose you can play as a different character each time. Yes. Uh, The door that you're trying to find is going to be in a potentially different spot. You might find items in one game that you don't in another. And these are all ways that spice up the game without changing it entirely. That is, this game feels like it's going to follow that same pattern every time. Replayability is going to stem from those little wrinkles given to that pattern, coupled with the fact that some games you're going to have that trader, some games you don't. Sometimes your buddy Mike is a trader and he plays it perfectly and just throws everyone off, whereas other times the trader might be found out kind of early. I think this style of game, the hidden trader style of game, is one that's that I've always found particularly replayable because it introduces the intangible of a given player's ability to perform the role. The people coming to your table, that's always a variable in any game you play, but especially in games like this, or even if there's no trader at all, players still have that lingering suspicion around each other. You know, well, we might not have a trader, but I still have to wonder That's what's going to make the game replayable. If you're playing with different people each time or even the same and you start to notice each other's trends, poker is a game that has no difference. You know, if you sit down for an evening of poker, the next time you sit down to do it, you're going to be doing the exact same thing. But even if you're playing with the same group that you've been playing with for five years or a different group every time you play, it's figuring out the other people. That's what makes the game replayable. And I think that they captured that a bit here in the stuff of Legend. What do you think? Replayability, variability. I want to say here, here to that. The game is very little variability. I mean, you're playing, so the characters have some unique abilities and you some. can change it. Some. It, it, it's minute, which I actually find it's fine. What you're doing in the game is pretty much the same each time. You're, you might take a different route. You might go a different direction. That's going to last you maybe two or three plays. But the replayability of this is entirely group dependent. And right. I think you nailed it on the head. This is just what you can bring this to a group of strangers at a convention and have a blast. You can bring this to a consistent group who plays it, you know, maybe once a month or maybe twice a month. And it's going to be yeah, this could be a regular time. table hitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the little bit of variability that's in there will spice it up. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm playing Max this just time. Enough. I'm playing yeah. Max this time, but I'm usually a Quackers. I'm a Quacker man. <laughs> I'm a Quacker I'm a Quackers player. <laughs> yeah, I'm a Quacker main. That's what I do. I like the intel. I like the uh, bravery of it. But like, no, I'm playing Max's time. I'm going to play myself a little bit differently. So the little bit of variability in there adds so much to the replayability and the experience you will go through in each play of Stuff of Legend. It's that time. Bit number seven. Every game's got downsides. Even if we love them, we can identify things that other people might not. Let's talk downsides of the Stuff of Legend. You want the floor? Yeah, I'll take it. So the only downside I can see is is the variability. I'll come back to that. If you are looking for a mechanism-driven game where what is happening on the table is what interests you, 
I personally don't think you're not you're going to get that in stuff of legends. The mechanisms no. are fine. It's, it's it's you know it's it's doing what it needs to do to conduit what's happening above the table with the players. They're safe and simple. Yeah, they they're just the they're the medium through which everybody gets to interact. Yeah, but if you're like your jam is advanced squad commander or commanding colors like you love feeling clever because of what you did on the board. I mean, you're you're not getting that here. It's a very mm-hmm. light mechanics game. I would like to see personally, maybe a little more deeper into like the asymmetry of the characters. I, I personally, maybe like a little bit more, maybe like there's like an easy side and maybe a complex side or something and things of that okay. nature. I thought combat could have been a little bit more interesting. There's not a lot of combat, but the constant chase of the boogeyman's horses coming after you, it made combat just a little bit tedious. Not much. But a little bit. If I'm really digging deep into this game, I think that the combat could have been resolved with issue a little, little bit better. I don't, I'm not sure how you would have done it. I have to like really dig into it and figure it out. It, it's a card play mechanism, but the combat I didn't find interesting, and it's not really mechanisms forward. And I would like to see maybe a little more mechanisms in there. Okay, okay. Well, we've got a voting system here. And, you know, I'm okay with that, but, you know, there are folks that we've all heard of that person that like, oh, I I don't like social deduction games because I don't like to lie. You know what I mean? Like that style of player. Um, I am not one of them. I love it. But this is that style of game. So it's not your jam. That's a downside here. Uh, I'm glad to hear that you said that you liked it at three players because, man, I think this is always going to be better at a higher player count. I haven't tried it at three, though, so I'll be excited too. This game is hard. Maybe that's my downside. Now, it's a co-op, and I want my co-op, well, semi-co-op, I want them to be hard. If you win every time, it's no fun. You you don't want to go into it knowing that you're going to win. You want to go into it knowing that it's going to be hard to win. This game can be very hard to win. If you have six players and there's only one trader, it's going to be hard. If you have six players and you have two traders... It's going to be very hard. Even with that, let me bring it up. The boogeyman is a bastard in this game. He is. <laughs> I got to look through his cards. He does. Like there is a boogeyman phase, like we mentioned before, where the boogeyman gets to put out his forces, flip his mm-hmm. cards and stuff like that. He yeah. does nasty things that really suck for lack of a better term. He earns his name. The he boogeyman. earns his name. It is tough. Like I had most players, I think, win the game, which oh, is how great. Most players yep. won the game, but it was by a thread, and they were barely hanging on. And I did help some of them out. Given the, I gave them some suggestions, like, "Hey, you should think about this as you're playing it." But like that boogeyman turn, like cl- I wasn't even playing. I clenched up sometimes when it came to that coin flip, <laughs> that horrible coin flip that you have to do. Yeah, you know what? Sure. That might bring me to another down. So you said uh, a lot of the games that you were watching, people were winning, but winning by just a hair. You know what? Our our table won, and we had that stand up and cheer moment. And every literally, every if you were at Origins, you remember the cheering at our table because you looked over. Nah, it was awesome, but it did come down to a gamble. It came down to okay, so we we've narrowed it down to these two doors. We don't have enough time to verify which one it is. If we go over there to check, to find out what's behind, you know, which one's the right one, we're going to die in the process. So we're here. Are we, are we going through this door or not? And it came to a vote, right? Cause it would be 50, 50. We're either going to win or lose based on this and out go the hands and the thumbs went up. We're like, all right, we're going through it. And that's when the chairs reached backwards and everybody stood up. Right. And the one dude took the card, picked it up, slammed it on the table and it was the right door and the the eruption happens and it was so exciting but it was a 50 50 it was down to like we played all this game and maybe that's okay 
you know, we played ourselves into a 50-50 chance. That can be a good thing or a bad thing, but it is somewhat deflating. Like if that wasn't the right door, I'd be like, oh, come on. <laughs> yeah, the game, just- the, the game has that. The highs are super high and the lows are extremely low type thing. And it going does on. culminate in one moment. Mm-hmm. It like, you know, some games there's that that big bang that happens in the middle of the game or three quarters of the way through. And then you you finish, you know, your last couple of turns like scooping up or or uh, oh, I just gotta tie up my loose ends over here. No, this one there is there's one big pivotal moment. It's not several little drops or several little like times where a good thing happened or a terrible thing happened. No, there's there's one major one at the end or there was in our game and eh, take it as you will. Can be a downside, can be an upside for some. Yeah. Was it fun? And who's it for? Bring it all home. This is what it's all about. Bit number eight. Was it fun? And who's it for? Explorer Josh, what do you got? Yes, it is fun. <laughs> it is <laughs> all right. so Fun. I mean, I might be like a hype person for when it comes to board games, but like this was so, so fun to, just to watch. Like if a game is fun to watch, yeah. I usually guarantee, at least for me, it's fun to play. It is a fantastic social experience. For who I say it's for, if you like games like Unfathomable, Battlestar Galactica, Shadows of Camelot, mm-hmm. I say, but I think a little more introductory style type game. And not nearly as long as Unfathomable or Battlestar Galactica. This is for you. The Mike was telling me that this game actually clocks in a little over an hour for experienced players, even at six player count. Yeah, I could see that. Which is great. An hour and the, the experience you get in just like an hour to 70 minutes is fantastic. The shortest game I had of it was 45 minutes of people who just got it immediately. That's without mm-hmm. the teach. I really think the people who are gonna love this game are those who like having a meta to their game people who enjoy the meta of having social interactions being able to read people and make decisions as a group and not minding that what you do on the table doesn't matter nearly as much as what happens above the table yes so i think this is for the person who loves talking with people loves the you know the community aspect of gaming but wants to have an experience that's going to be not only you know variable each time but different each time something they can bring to you know maybe not i I can even see this going to people who aren't gamers and saying hey you like toy story but a little more edgy we're gonna play toy story that's a little more darker much darker (laughs) we're gonna play this to sit down and we're gonna try to figure out who's a traitor this is for the the gamer who wants to bring his gamer friend non-gamer friends to the social deduction area and have them a really memorable experience patrick was it fun and who's it for it was definitely fun. Dude, I'm looking to get a physical copy of this for myself because it was. I want to show this off at the meetups. Like we do our level up meetups and there's so many times where it's like, okay, I have a I have a game that I want to play and it's a four person game. But if I want to play a six player game, it's something like dumb and simple. You know what I mean? Like it's okay. It's a 15 minute icebreaker kind of game. This is one that I can show off at the meetups and I think it'll make for that social icebreaker and the theme's just icing on the cake. Is it ever going to be like one of my favorite games ever? Probably not. You know, I I don't want to overhype it, but I also don't want to sell it short. I like that there's an emergent narrative, like the story bubbles to the surface as you're playing the game. And I like that even when you don't have a super productive individual turn, you're still involved above the table in those group decisions. Like an element of the gameplay is that table talk. And when a game does that, you play with the mechanisms on the table more so with the other people. And that interaction in a game is a huge plus here. So who's that for? I 
said so much of the same thing you did. I'll throw in uh, what are okay, Dead of Winter, The Thing, Infection and Outpost Thirty One. If you like those styles of games, you're gonna like that. I think that this is in the upper tier of hidden trader games. And if your group Definitely. loves the meta game talk above the table, you love pointing fingers, backstabbing, take the leap of faith. I don't think you're gonna be disappointed. I think you're gonna love the stuff of legend. go today we had the opportunity to look at a giant sheet of paper and solve crimes in micro macro crime city scott and i reviewed this one i believe it was the last game we reviewed in season one here we are doing the look back on it have you played this one josh no and i'm very disappointed that i haven't when i say when i say have you played this one i mean have you looked at a piece of paper uh specifically Um, that was in the box that says micro macro I have. I have looked at the macro <laughs> macro map. And I understand the game enough. So <laughs> Oh, but you saw the map and you didn't play it? I mean that I mean that's a great point. Like you play the game, you you look at the board the the paper, you look at the paper and you play the game. It's You're playing the game. You're playing the game. It's it's everything everywhere all at once happening on a piece of paper. That's what's going yes. on. So in its execution, Micro Macro is going to give you several different missions. You'll flip over a card and it's going to say, uh, it'll show you a picture and it'll give you the quadrant. So you've got like A, B, C, D, E, F, G across the top and numbers across the bottom. So it divides the map into various quadrants. And it's going to say, oh no, the hamburger stand man was murdered uh, in A2. And you look at A2 and you can see it on the card and it shows, okay, that's the character. He's got this silly little hat and he's wearing a bow tie. And if I look up there in A2, oh yeah, there he is. He's got X's for eyes. He's murdered. And you have to find out who murdered the hamburger stand man. So you basically just, okay, there he is. And you just look around for another instance of the hamburger stand. Oh, there he is over there. Well, that's inferring that that is earlier. Before he was murdered, he was right there. And you backtrack a little bit more, like you just follow down the street. Oh, there he is again. And then you follow down the street. Uh, uh, oh, wait, there's the hamburger stand and there's a guy standing outside of it. So you follow along. Okay, I saw him over here before. <gasps> there's that guy again and he's got a bat, right? And you can <laughs> deduce, okay, how did the hamburger stand man get murdered? They give you several scenarios through which you can do that. Basically, they're in envelopes. So I open up the first envelope and it's, okay, find out where the hamburger stand man uh, uh, was after he finished working and you say, okay, that was in a three, you flip over the card and it says, Hey, it was in a three. You were right. Right. So you continue on the next card said, what did he have for breakfast? You know, like just another clue, another thing to find as you're trying to piece together this mystery, several different scenarios that do that. The game's engaging. It's fun. It's, it's revolution. Like it is truly remarkable. That you can follow a case from start to finish using these cards and using one map that is a snapshot through multiple time zones, I guess you'd say. I had a lot of fun doing it. It, it just, I don't know if I would call it a game per se, but if you haven't tried it, I'd absolutely recommend that you get yourself a copy. I think this is probably the most innovative game to come out within, I'd say, in the last five years, maybe okay. even 10, I could say. It, it, this, this idea of that time is you know, to quote the Doctor Who wibbly wobbly ball of stuff. Oh, here you go. Hey, I watched <laughs> that one that you said, the Blink episode. Did you like it? It was wonderful. Great. Awesome. It was, it was slightly creepy. It was intriguing. Uh, yeah, it was excellent. Yeah. And the wonderful thing is you don't need to watch any more Doctor Who after that. You can watch that 
and you can just that's all you need to do. <laughs> but yeah, I know back the principle that, of Doctor Who. <laughs> you know, you know what Doctor Who is. You understand everything you know about Doctor Who from that one episode. And going back to the wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff, that's what this game is in a nutshell. I mean, already everything's already happening. You're just trying to piece together based on where you're on the map what sequence did it happen in. And having that, having to, I mean, I can't imagine drawing this thing and creating the board for this. Oh, that just sounds like a, a chore. But there's just so much good that went into this game. Yeah, it's you can debate whether it's a game or not. It could just be an activity. But you know, it's a game. It's wonderful, and I'm really happy it exists. You know what I'll say? Even if you don't qualify it as a game, if you call it an activity, well, it's a darn good one. And uh, yes. for that reason, I would recommend that everyone give it a try. I can't imagine anybody picking this up and playing it, quote, playing it, and saying, well, that was dumb. Or I, I really didn't enjoy that. Everybody's going to enjoy this. But if you like playing Azul and you like playing Brass and you like playing, you know, all these various board games, this might feel board game adjacent. Yeah, I definitely agree. Well, I think we're done in here, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's Let's go to the micro. discussion room. All right. Let's jump. One of the most popular games in the hobby, and the oldest in the BGG Top 100, is Crokinole. And at Level Up, we're big fans. Oh yeah! Most of our meetups have a Crokinole board set up and ready for action. Our choice for anything and everything Crokinole is Brown Castle Games. Brown Castle is a family-owned company that produces boards of unmatched quality. With a circular frame, a variety of hardware veneer playing surfaces, and a professional edge banding, let me tell you, these boards stand out. Oh, no doubt, Scott. And along with your board, Brown Castle has the best crokinole accessories I have ever seen. The discs, the holders, the carrying case, they make the best. Yes, they do. Adventurers, you know our style. When we partner with someone, it's to get savings for you. Exclusively mm -hmm. for adventurers, get 5% off anything and everything from Brown Castle Games. The boards, cases, accessories, you name it. Get 5% off with promo code LEVEL5. L-E-V-E-L, -E -E the number 5, all caps, no spaces. Find it all at www.browncastlegames.com. Well, Josh, we have the pleasure of being able to work for Board Game Tables tomorrow and on Saturday, where we're going to be working together from 10 to 2. It got me to thinking, you know, there's got to be people listening going, if you go to these conventions, well, you see all these people working these booths. Do they work for the company? Are they full-time employees? How do they get this job? We want to talk a little bit about the ins and outs about working at a convention. And I want to kick it off with how do we find the work? Let me hear what you got. How do you find board game tables? What, what brings you to that? I didn't put in a good word for you. <laughs> I told them don't hire him. Exactly. So um, the one thing I'll say, it's not hard to volunteer at a convention. The main reason I do it is that I want my career to be tabletop. And so I'm doing a lot of networking because of this. Mm -hmm. But if you want to just volunteer, it's not hard. Easiest way to do it, in my opinion, is just by going to the actual convention. So there's publishers in between stuff. And that will get you to volunteer. Like You can volunteer for Origins by doing stuff for the convention, not necessarily the publishers. That's mm -hmm. the easiest way to do it because from there you get to meet publishers and stuff like that. Right. Um, now, what I would specifically recommend is doing – there's something called like a, pump, a publisher. It's like a 
I don't know. It, it changes the term. It's basically a, a runner for the publishers. Like, hey, you work at Origins. You go up to the publisher. Hey, what do you need right now? We need this. Okay, great. You're with that. That's going to get you a lot of connections in the publisher sphere right there. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to do like the groundwork like I had to do, like I volunteered at Tantrum Con, which is a convention here in Raleigh for Tantrum House. And that led me to meet the person who was in charge of Tantrum Con. And that led to me having conversations with her about the industry, which connected me with a whole bunch of people from you know queen games, board game tables, whole exploding kittens and things like that. Sure, that, sure. It connected me a whole bunch of people. And that's, you know, like I said, that's how I met board game tables and how I met the people who run the volunteering there. I sat down, asked him some questions and said, hey, when's the next time I can help you? And would you like me to help you? He's like, absolutely. You're awesome. And that's that's how I got it. It was just by asking. All right. All right. So what if I'm Joe Adventurer and I'm like, okay, that's good for Josh because he's kind of connected, but I want to do that too. What would you tell Joe? There's two options here. One, just do a cold call email. Yeah. Publishers are always looking for volunteers. There are There's a Facebook forum called Tabletop Game Jobs. Weeks before the conventions happen, something always terrible happens with the volunteers. And there's always, why is that? I don't know, because gamers <laughs> Dude, get Scott sick. Scott was set to work for Berkey, and he was going to work for like four hours a day. And he's like, oh, they had three people quit. I'm basically going to be working all of PAX with Berkey. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why people just change their plans all of a sudden, because it's like, it's like setting up a game night. It's just impossible sometimes because yeah, everyone's no planning kidding. stuff. But you know, just cold email. Publishers are always looking for people to volunteer. The other one is through a program called Envoy to keep a make it really short without complexity things. Basically, a it's a business that helps publishers find people to demo their games. Mm-hmm. Um, you just apply. You have a conversation with the choice like, hey, what kind of games you want to run? Heavy, light, medium. How many ships can you do? Okay great. We're going to play with this publisher. They'll get in contact with you and you're going to get paid in games pretty, pretty mm-hmm. much. Yeah. Um, uh, what was your experience in, in finding people for to volunteer for? Well, first and foremost, definitely the Envoy program. Uh, Envoy is set up initially like, they have two different functions. If you sign up to be an Envoy Herald, they call them. What that means is you'll, uh, you'll tell Envoy what you want to demo for publishers, they'll send you a couple of those games and the agreement is, okay, we're going to send you, I don't know, Stronghold, second edition, and you need to teach it for, uh, I don't know, we'll say six demos of it. And then you go ahead and keep the copy of the game. But Envoy's always posting, uh, like I get emails through Envoy as cons are coming up. They're like, hey, this publisher needs volunteers. This publisher needs, and what, not volunteers, employees. This publisher needs people to work for them. This publisher needs people to work for them. And I said, email the publisher. Just send an email. Well, how do, what do I get the email? Do I just click contact on their website? Yes. Do that. Introduce yes. yourself. They need people and they pay. And most of them are going to give you a shirt. Some of them are going to feed you. Most of them are going to give you a badge. So if you're working for board game tables, say Friday, Saturday, they're going to give you a badge for Friday and Saturday. You're going to have that demo badge, you know, what are they, the exhibitor badge. So you'll be able to get in and you'll set up shop with board game tables, show off their games for a few hours. You've got a bad, you, when you're done, you know, hey, do you guys need me for any longer? No, no, you're free to go. Well, go enjoy the convention. It's essentially free for you then. So it's, it's a double, we'll say a, a double win for you. You get paid for working, be it in games, be it in money, be it in product, whatever. And you're getting a badge, so you get to sort of enjoy the half day for free. And that's kind of cool. And I think that leads into what you were saying before about once you actually get a publisher to work for, 
you kind of want to keep that contact because it becomes a lot easier once you have your nails into this volunteer position to keep it if you are well prepared for it. So mm-hmm. the games they send you, for instance, they you really need to know your ins and outs of it. it like they're gonna they're gonna help you along. Like board game tables and third world studios when I volunteer for them, they were very kind to make sure to go over the games very quickly because they're busy to make sure mm-hmm. I knew what I was doing. But they really appreciated that I had read the rule books and watched the videos for every single game that I was demoing. Yeah, a lot of it comes down for you know how do we prepare? So you emailed the publisher and they said, yes, we'd like you. What do you have to do now? Now, they're not always going to send you a game. Most of them will not send you a game. They'll send you how to play videos. That's what uh, BGT does, for example. Your job is to know the games. If they have a library of 40 don't worry. They're probably going to say, these are the five games that we want you to know. But five's a lot. Five is a lot. And you can't like, I've read the rules twice. No, you got to be able to like, know these games inside. Now you got to be able to teach them to people, practice teach. How about this, Josh? I was talking with Scott about this one. We sat down at Origins and Sleeping Gods just cracked the top 100. He and I will forever probably not like that game. And you know oh, why? Breaks my heart. <laughs> I know. It's the teach. I know you enjoy that one. It's the teach. We sat down to play it and the guy basically cracked the rule book. You know, we signed up, signed up for a demo. This is the professional that's going to show us how to play. And he like opens the rule book. He's like, okay, we need uh, some pieces over here and uh, some pieces. And I'm like, well, we could have done this. I didn't come to the con to crack a rule book and try and learn how to play the game. You're supposed to show me. Later on that day, I sat down to play the Stuff of Legend, our review game today. And Explorer Josh taught it. And you knew everything. And so we had a question. You're like, oh, yeah, there might have been one time out of a dozen that you're like, you know what? Let me check that. And you had to crack the rule book. Totally different experience. Learn the games inside and out. Know how to teach them. Practice teaching them. Teach it to yourself in the mirror. You know, just get good at it so that whenever the time comes and you're live, you're on your A game, right? Yeah. And it really, really breaks my heart. How much a demo can make or break a person's experience? Like, mm-hmm. you know, Sleeping Gods. I'm not gonna. I'm never gonna try to convince you to play that game again. But like, it's so. <laughs> oh, I probably will at some yeah, point. Yeah, it's so good. Like, I love Sleeping Gods. It's it's a fantastic game. I've sunk like 13 hours in that game at this point. It's so good. But it was ruined by just a person did a bad demo. So we got our job. We're prepping for it. We learned our games. We know them inside and out. Yes, and it yes. is Friday morning, first day of the con. And Ooh. you've got to go walk into that exhibitor hall and walk out of the booth and you're ready to roll. So it, what do you say? We've got to be professional, right? You comb your hair. <laughs> Put, Put on, on deodorant. Let's, please. let's be professional. Step one. Any suggestions for day of? Okay. Beyond, I, obviously, things that we'll get to about running yeah. the demo. Yeah. I love what you said before. 80% of these companies are going to be paying you to do this, Mm -hmm. which is strange because you're already getting a badge. You're already getting a t-shirt. Sometimes you even get free games. And sometimes they're still going to pay you. Like we're getting, I think we're getting paid for our time at board game tables this weekend. They give you an option. You can take pay or you can take a little bit more in store credit. They give you a shirt for each day. And this is kind of funny. I thought about it originally. I was like, why would they give me a shirt for each day? Why wouldn't they just one? Oh, because we don't know how, like you don't have access to doing laundry. Yeah. They want to make, so, okay. So they give you a shirt every day because they want to make sure that it is clean and neat. What does that tell you? You know, you're representing the company. 
You yes. are the ensign. You are the harbinger. You are welcoming these people who have hundreds of choices, hundreds of ways to spend their time. You are the face of their booth. Like yeah. a, ga- a yeah. game can only do so much. Like one thing I understand about conventions is that you can have the most gorgeous looking booth in the world. But if you have Tim Tommy Toe looking like he's going to murder you when you come up, you're not going to enter the booth. You're not going to go in. You are there to welcome people in. Like, please come play my game. It's going to be worth your time. Put it on the face of that and actually have a feeling that you want to teach these games. You love these games. And if you don't, make them believe you love these games. <laughs> yeah, even it that's a great point. Even if you don't, you love the game. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about when you're doing a demo or when you're working at the booth. Maybe you're not doing a demo. Someone like Scott, he's got products that he's selling with Berkey with the tabletop, game with toppers. the table toppers. Yeah, so Scott isn't actually going to be demoing. He still has to adhere to some of this. We're going to say like when doing a demo, when you're interacting with someone, what are some of the bullet points that we want to keep in mind? Yeah. So there's a couple different things. I, I really don't think we should go over how to teach a game because that's no, a whole no. different conversation. Yeah, it's its own animal. Sure. But when you're demoing a game, there's a couple different things to consider. Number one, the first thing you should do is tell the player what the game is, what they're doing into it, and how they're going to win. Mm-hmm. That's, I think in the first... 15 seconds, that's what you should explain to people. Even if it's mm-hmm. a super big, long game, maybe 30 seconds. Explain that to people because you're trying to pitch it. That's the hook. Like, hey, this is Kabuto Sumo. You are sumo wrestling bugs trying to push the other players off the board. way you do that is with these pieces and this little platform. You push them off. It's like a little coin. It's like that coin arcade game you play, you see all the time. And the first person to fall off wins the game. You're like, oh, there you go. that's the pitch for Kabuto Sumo. That has never failed me once. People will always hop in and play with that. Sure. And so you want that 15-second pitch. After that, you get to go into the teach a little bit more. But the biggest thing, remember, is to be concise, be friendly, and be understanding is another one. Don't be impatient with people because they may not get the game at first. They are Conventions are loud. They are very loud. Mm-hmm. There's lots of stimulus. They may not get you explaining a simple card game at first. So be patient with them. We understand there's a lot going on and make them want to stay to learn the game, even though right. they may be frustrated. But what, what are your thoughts about this? You've demoed games. Yeah, I always like the idea of introduce yourself, but more importantly, ask names and remember their names. There's a skill to that. I, I'm always envious of people who seem to remember people's names, no problem, because I'm not very good at it. But if you, hey guys, my name's Patrick, you know, like they walk up and this is how we play Kabuto Sumo. So I'm going I'm to demonstrate it. My name's Patrick. What's your name? Uh, Elizabeth. Okay, Elizabeth, which character do you want to play? 10 minutes later, they're finishing up their game and you're like, hey, Elizabeth, good job. You, you know, like, it personalizes the experience. Ask a name, make it feel like you're not only just glad that they're not another potential buyer. They're a person. Make them feel valued for being there. Remember, these people, folks that are coming to your booth, they bought tickets. They spent money to be here and they're opting to spend their time with you for this demo. Well, it's on you to make it awesome then. Bring on the enthusiasm. Bring on that excitement. It's on you to make it awesome. Absolutely. And I think with that, you want to have the personal experiences to be a good demo word and have some, you also got to remember the business side. I mean, you know, publishers are there to make money. They're not going to make a lot of yep. it. So they, they need to make as much of it as possible. Q-tip. Here's a, here's a you know insider tip in the industry. Publishers don't make a lot of money at conventions. It's very mm-hmm. rare they make money. They're most of the time they're taking a loss, but they go there 
because one, it's good business to get your exposure, but two, it's because they want to meet the fans of their games. They gen- mm-hmm. Most people in the industry are generally really great people who love games just as much as we do. So when you're a demo, remember that this is a lot of times their livelihood as well. And they're giving the opportunity to be here for free for most of the part, most time, mm-hmm. try to sell the game. You don't have to be a great salesman, but you are trying to convince them to buy this game. And that's a courtesy you need to give the publisher because that's what they're there to do. That's ultimately what you are there to do. They didn't hire someone to just show people how to play a game. No, they want to sell these games. So ultimately, that is your job. Point out the sale. Hey, we got a con special, 25 bucks for this game. And you know what? Even if that's not a special, even if that's MSRP, you know what? If they're calling it a con special, then it's the con special. You get hyped up. You show the value. Look, you get all these pieces. You get the, we'll stick with the Kabuto Sumo. You get 12 different bugs with all these different cards, all these pieces with this. And we got a con special right now, 40 bucks. Oh, wow. This guy's excited about it. You know what? I think I might pick this up before I go. You point out how great the game is, point out that great price. Ultimately, you're there to sell the game or the product. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to be like, you know, the greasy car smells like, like, oh, maybe not right now. Like, no, no, this is why you need it, Sonny. This come back. You buy this right now. I'm going to throw in two promo cards. Yeah, exactly. No, (laughs) you don't, you don't have to be that way. Just give them, give them the reasons why they need it. Yeah. And honestly believe that because, you know, there's thousands of games there that people are going to buy. Give them the reasons why this, they need this in the collection. Like I'm going to say mountain goats. Have you played that one? That's a small game by board game tables. That is Mm -hmm. super simple. You roll two dice and move some goats. That's literally it. That was the number one seller throughout my entire experience. Like I sold more copies of Mountain's Goats at Origins than any other game because I was like, hey, this is a great game you can play with anybody, no matter who. Plays with six players. It's 15 bucks, and you get an expansion right now if you pay a little bit more for the convention. People are like, easy sell. It's a no-brainer. You know, get, get, no-brainer. Shut up, shut up and take my money. It takes 10 minutes. To, they, they, I had people play two games in 10 minutes of Mountain Goats, and boom. And now Board Game Tables always invites me back. <laughs> so the demo's winding down. Thank you, demoers. Thank them for coming. Don't thank them for playing. the. Hey, thanks for stopping by Board Game Tables. Hey, I hope you guys had fun with Board Game Tales, whatever booth you're working for. You know, plug that one more time. When you're done for the day, thank that publisher. You know, they put their faith in you. Thank them for having you. And if you feel like you did a good job, ask when you can help. Hey, thanks so much for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. I had a really good time. Do you need me any longer for today? No, okay. Hey, let me know next time you guys need help. Again, I really enjoyed doing this. Show that enthusiasm. I think they really appreciate that. No, absolutely. It is is something that... I find that most of my convention experiences are more fulfilling when I'm volunteering for a publisher because I feel like that I got to see the both sides of the convention. I got most out of it. I was able to connect with people who I may have not connected with. And, you know, I got a little bit of pay out of it most of the time. I got a little bit extra that not many people else are going to get. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, adventurers, I hope that gives you an idea of what you can expect if you're hoping to, at some point, work for a publisher at a convention. It's definitely a unique experience. Josh said it's fulfilling. I 100% agree. It's a chance to see the other side of the industry. Frankly, that time flies because it is fun. Oh, yeah. And it's busy. You are never not doing anything, especially like on a Saturday or a Friday night. It is packed. Oh, they gave us Panera bread at Gen Con. I hope we get something real good too. Oh, that yeah. was so awesome. Maybe Panera again. That'd be great. They got they got stuff from like the the hot chicken stand from the uh, oh. origins. 
the North Market. They got some stuff yeah. like a hot chicken sandwich. Mm, so worth it. <laughs> that, that made the entire thing worth it. <laughs> Well, Josh, we've come to the end of episode 77 and the end of season two. Thanks so much for being a part of not just the first season, but all of second season and today's episode. As you know, we like to finish with how we leveled up. Now, normally for Scott and I, that's how we leveled up since the last time we had each other in studio. In this case, you being the visitor, I'm going to kind of leave that open-ended. Tell me, how'd you level up, Josh? Well, first off, I know I'm not your first choice, so thank you, though, for letting me on. I always enjoy coming on, talking games <laughs> with you guys. Definitely not my first choice. And that's okay. I don't have to be your first choice, but I'm just <laughs> grateful to be on anyway and be in this little podcast family you guys got going on. Well, how did I level up? So I've been looking for a more substantial way to support my family in the board game industry. Right now, I'm at my friendly little game store doing you know game mastering for RPGs and also retail stuff. And it's fine. I love the job. I enjoy working with the people there. But, you know, I have a family that's growing and I need to feed them. Um, so I've been looking for jobs and I'm happy I to- have them working for board game tables. They'll get Panera Bread. I, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm really happy because this week I have an interview. It's a second interview with a publisher in the UK. I don't want to say who they are. Just, just because it's not anything for sure yet, but it's, sure, a, it's sure. a famous publisher. They do RPGs, war games, and board games, um, and they mainly deal with IPs. Okay. So I have a second interview with them for a brand management position for mm-hmm. a line of games that they are trying to push a little bit harder. I had my first interview that was like 15 minutes long. Them just getting to know me, see if they want to continue on. And now I have a second interview that's going to be an hour-long interview of me presenting my vision for their game line based on this feedback they gave me. I'm prepared. I'm pretty confident in my abilities to talk about games because that's what I do a lot. Mm-hmm. And I'm really hoping this turns into an opportunity. If not, I'm sure there's an opportunity around the corner. But just being in the position where someone will consider me, that's a level up for me. Yeah, darn right. Well, congratulations. I wish you luck. And uh, I, that is a great level up. You'll hear about it at PAX, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's this week. Like it's Tuesday. Do this so, hour. Oh, oh yeah, man. So we're recording this before PAX. So it's the Tuesday before PAX that this is happening. So I'm, I'm getting ready for it. <laughs> good luck, man. Good luck. Appreciate it. You want me to throw in a good word? I'll tell them you were my fourth choice for who to have on in place of Scott. Mm. Chef's <laughs> kiss. Beautiful recommendation. <laughs> God, I hate you. That, oh, God. <laughs> My level up this time uh, actually is one that I've shared with Scott off the air, and I'm, I'm actually very pleased with it. So uh, at our last meetup that we had, first of all, it was our biggest meetup to date. Uh, our record was set in the summer. We had, I think, 44 gamers at the vault, and we actually broke that number. We had 49 at Ruckus Cafe in Shaver, so that was delightful. We did have uh, one of our listeners uh, actually made a, a, a donation to the show, which we don't ask for, uh, and it's entirely unexpected, but it's... It is enough that we're able to pay for like our hosting fees for next year. We can get some prizes for our next meetup and pay for the website. So it tremendously helps. Uh, I'm not going to say any names. You know who you are. More so than, hey, we got some money for the show, right? That That's great and all. But uh, to feel like we've provided significant value for a listener. Now, you know, those uh, I like to think that everybody that listens gets something out of it. And we hope or we at least like to imagine that, you know, we're kind of like a, we're a warm cup of tea to a listener. You know, when I listen to a podcast, I feel like I know them, even if I don't know them. 
And I feel like, oh, it's the gang. I'm tuning in and listening to these. You know, I want to hear what they have to say this time. They don't know me. They've never heard, heard me talk. They've never met me. But I listen to them every two weeks and they eventually become kind of a part of my routine. I get some value out of that. And to have a listener do something that is proof that we've provided value to him or her, that's uh, it's really fulfilling. It's remarkably fulfilling. You know, it makes me feel like, you know what, I'm just going to keep on going because yeah, well, you know what with uh, doing the submarine, when you finish recording with Andrew, I know you've got an hour and a half worth of audio and you're like, oh my God, it's going to take me seven hours to edit this. And I make no money doing this. And I have a wife and a kid. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I know that feeling and I know you're feeling it too. It's inevitably you go, well, why am I doing this? And the answer is because I like doing it. I, I'm having fun doing it. I, I'm happily exactly. spending yeah. that time editing. But whenever you get thrown a bone like that, when someone says, you know what? I really appreciate you guys. Oh, it's like warm hugs. It's uh, it's, it's chef's kiss as you would call it. So uh, to that, to that specific listener, you know who you are. Thank you so much. We're glad that, uh, that, that you're getting so much joy and, uh, and we're providing some value to, uh, in your life and other adventures. We hope we're doing the same for you, Josh. Thanks so much for coming on today. Adventures. If you're on your way to PAX, we hope that you have a wonderful time. Stop by and meet Josh and I at board game tables. We're going to be there Friday and Saturday from 10 to two. I'll be there Sunday as well. 10 to two. You can find Scott over with Berkey at, at the game toppers booth. We're probably going to be over there a bit too. If you go, have a safe and happy time. Keep your ears open in a couple weeks. Scott's going to be rejoining us for today. Josh, thank you so much, so much for joining me. It's it's always a pleasure, and I'm really looking forward to spending time with you at PAX. I'm going to give you the last word for the episode, and don't you dare plug your podcast. <laughs> uh, what would Scott say? Remember, when you see a tree in the forest that has already fallen, don't ponder whether it's made of sound or not. Just keep walking because you're getting chased by a hungry bear. Thank you, adventurers, for joining us for this episode of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. That's where you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes and the Heatley Brothers. And remember, whether in hobby or in life, always do what you can to level up.